Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package. For you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to Kidapan here. I am Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism, and today I'd like to take some time to discuss nations, colonialism, and the people that constitute them. That is, of course, quite broad. But in the end, I hope that folks are able to come away with a sense of at least my version of the anarchist position on nations, the impact of colonization on the psyches of individuals within nations, and the role of national liberation in social revolution. Today, I'm joined by me, Mia, who, oh boy, it, great topic, interesting topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, I think part of what makes the topic so interesting is because of how, for lack of a better term, how wiggly uh, some of these terms are, um, how hard to pin down some of these definitions are. So it's very important to be clear at the outset what you mean by a nation, what you mean by national liberation, um, that sort of thing. So what is a nation? What comes to mind uh, for you, Mia? Oh God! Put <laughs> <laughs> um, in a spot. Yeah, I know. I should have, should have pre-prepped an answer to this. I have a very difficult time conceiving of a nation as something that's separated from a state, which I know is something a lot of people try to do. Um, for me, it's just been sort of permanently welded to the nation state in a way that makes it hard to sort of think about without conjoining the two. That's fair. That's fair. I think that, that that really is part of what we're going to end up discussing. Because for one, you know, as we'll see, a lot of nations were formed 
through the process of colonization um, and through the process of incorporation into the global, uh, you know, superstructure, the global system. And secondly, it is seen to be the ultimate aim of a nation, the greatest accomplishment of a nation, to eventually establish their own state, to have a state of their own. Uh, we call nations that don't have their own state, stateless nations. Uh, the Kurds being one of the most notable examples. But it really is commonly seen that the ultimate accomplishment is for the liberation of your people is that you establish a state to rule that people for themselves. Of course, what for themselves actually means uh, becomes quite clear as in many cases, uh, foreign rulers and the practices of foreign rulers just take on a local face. Yeah, there's a there's a Kurdish joke that goes roughly. I'd getting your own nation state means that you secret police torture you in your own language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That is, uh, I like that. I like that. And language really is one of the aspects of what it is to be a nation. It is not. It's not necessarily the only aspect or primary aspect, but it is one aspect. Um, for example, what is considered the Basque nation, uh, those in northern Spain and part of southern, southwestern France, I believe, their identity is not entirely, but quite significantly tied to their language because it is a language that is completely distinct from any other language found in Europe or really anywhere else in the world. But language is just one aspect. The nation, a nation, I mean, not in the sense of a state or a country or political constitution, but in the sense of an imagined community of people, an imagined community of people. I think that imagined aspect of it is quite important, as we'll soon see. But an imagined community of people formed on the basis of a common language, history, ancestry, society, or culture, who are conscious of their autonomy. So it's not enough that a group of people merely share a language or share history or share an ancestry or share society or share culture. It's important that for them to be defined as a nation, that they are conscious of the fact that they share those things in common and that they use that consciousness to develop some sense of an imagined shared identity of imagined community, whether or not each individual in that community knows all the other individuals in that community. Nations are not necessarily geographically bound, like, you know, certain conceptions of a nation may be, but rather often diasporic. Uh, and some, some nations even united under a banner of nations such as in the case of Pan-Africanism, which is a form of nation movement or pan-nation movement that seeks to unite the thousands of ethnic groups and also the diaspora of the continent of Africa in response to the exploitation of outsiders. In fact, the Pan-African nation is really a quintessential example of how colonialism creates nations while exploiting them. And Although uh, Native American populations retained 
slightly more of their heritage than the displaced African population in North America. Um, though this is not to deny what was lost. Uh, their forced displacement also created something of a shared ethnic identity, uh, which is where you see movements like Red Power popping up during the height of the civil rights era. Prior to the process of colonization, they were distinct in their cultural groupings. Um, this group would be uh, Blackfoot. This group would be Cree. This group would be um, Sioux or something. Right. This group would be Sioux. But then as they ex- had the shared experience of colonization, they began to develop a sense of shared identity against those that were colonizing them, a sense of solidarity that transcended their previous uh, cultural distinctions and designations. Not that those designations don't still exist, but many have adopted a sort of pan-nation above that as a vehicle through which they can undertake their struggle. However, mere opposition between a colonized group and a colonizing force is not the only way that colonialism creates uh, new nations. Also through uh, social stratification, uh, through hybridization, uh, through the imposition of new religions, through new education systems, new languages, and new administrative boundaries. All of those are ways in which colonialism can develop new nations. For example, in the case of the Métis, uh, a cultural intermingling and intermarriage between two radically different groups ended up with the birth of the new nation of the Métis in the unique colonial history of Canada. And as we've seen, nations are often the targets of subjection and of subjugation and erasure. African peoples were stolen from the continent and thoroughly stripped of their languages, histories, and cultures, and continue to be oppressed throughout much of the so-called New World. In the United States, African Americans faced centuries of systemic racism, In Brazil, the Afro-Brazilian population also faced similar historical discrimination, similarly in in Colombia, and so on and so on. Indigenous nations across the world also continue to be denied their autonomy as minorities within a domineering state. Palestinians in Israel have faced a long-standing conflict due to the erasure of their self-determination. Kurds in the Middle East, as I've mentioned, are spread across several countries and do not have a country of their own, so they have historically sought independence, or at least autonomy. Aboriginal Australians have faced struggles related to land rights, cultural preservation, and self-governance. And although New Zealand has made progress in recognizing the rights of the indigenous Maori people, Maori in New Zealand have also dealt with issues related to land ownership and cultural preservation. Whether it be the Armenians under the Ottoman Empire in the past, or the current subjugation of Hawaii and Puerto Rico under the US, or the Tibetan population still under the thumb of the Chinese state, really could go on and on. I really could go on and on. Across the world, struggles have been and are being fought by nations for their liberation. And much of the suffering and struggle is thanks to the process of colonization. Our present national borders and demographics have been largely shaped and dictated by the colonization and conquest of a few nations from Europe. But what is colonialism exactly? As one anthropologist, Chris Courtright, put it, 
Colonialism is the establishment and control of a territory for an extended period of time by a sovereign power over a subordinate and other people which are segregated and separated from the ruling power. He goes on to say that features of the colonial situation include political and legal domination over the other society, relations of economic and political dependence, and institutionalized racial and cultural inequalities. To impose their dominant physical force through raids, expropriation of labor and resources, imprisonment and objective murders, enslavement of both the indigenous people and their land is the primary objective of colonization. Through colonization, native cultures must be destroyed, either stripped, crushed, emptied, subsumed, co-opted, or dismantled. And since colonialism relies on a dichotomy of superiority and inferiority, the colonialists must impose their own culture over the native population, from language to dress to daily practice. That culture, which, by the way, becomes native through that process of colonization, and that really gets into the whole discussion of what makes something native, what makes a people native. Um, There are two definitions that I balance or try and dance between, uh, one being indigeneity through land relationship and the other being indigeneity through colonial relationship. And so I'm referring to the indigeneity through colonial relationship when I say that a culture or people becomes native through that process of colonization. Because prior to colonial incursions, there was no non-native to define themselves against. They just woo. You'll need to define yourself as native to a place when an outsider or an invasive force is pushing you out of that place or trying to dominate you within that place. The old forms of colonization are largely over. But the spirit of colonization still lingers. It is a specter in the spheres of culture and politics and economics. The colonial complex created the world we see today and left quite the impression psychologically on both the colonized and the colonizer. French Tunisian writer Albert Mami wrote uh, but I consider it to be a very essential work on the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized. Uh, that work, that book, is called The Colonized and the Colonized. Uh, it was published in 1957. And it was written, of course, in a very important time, in a time when many national liberation movements were quite active. And so this work is often held up with other important works in that anti-colonial milieu, including Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, uh, Black Skin, White Masks, and Amy Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism. In the book, The Colonized and the Colonized, Nami spends some time discussing the psychology of both, and he splits the condition, psychological conditions of the colonized and the colonized into four parts. The colonizer who accepts, the colonizer who refuses, the colonized who accepts, and the colonized who refuses. So first, there's the colonizer who accepts. I've called that colonizer Christopher, uh, for obvious reasons, that being Columbus. And so the Christopher accepts his role as a colonizer. 
he becomes a colonist. That means he has to accept the fact that his position of privilege is non-legitimate. So the only way he could really enjoy his position would be to absolve himself of the conditions, of the guilt of the conditions under which he was attained. That's why Christopher falsifies history, creates racist mythology, rewrites laws, and attempts to whitewash his legacy. That's why he emphasizes his superiority while casting aspersions on the colonized. He has to do whatever it takes to justify his evils, to uplift himself to the skies while grinding those below him underground. Deep down, Christopher knows all this is messed up, but he can't admit that to himself. He has to keep degrading the colonized. And so just as the colonial situation manufactures the colonized, Christopher, the colonialist, is also transformed. Now he cheers on torture, discrimination, and massacre. He becomes a reactionary, a conservative, and a fascist. But the condemnation that he carries in his heart can never truly be erased. It pisses him off that he relies on the colonized to maintain the colony, even though he came looking for profit and already has a homeland. But he has to direct his anger somewhere, so he becomes a racist. And not just any racism, a racism so fundamentally ingrained in his personality. Racism built on three major components. One, that there exists a major gulf between him and the colonized. Two, that he can exploit these differences to his benefit. And three, that these differences are absolute and cannot be changed. Therefore, he's able to remain separate from the community of the colonized by halting any social mobility, and he's able to continue to justify his superiority. Because, honestly, circular logic, right? These people are inferior because they aren't at my level and they aren't at my level because I keep them in a, because I keep them in their inferior position and on and on and on. Added bonus, of course, he gets to feel good about himself while doing so. He becomes a humanitarian. Surely the colonized needed him to bring the light of civilization. Look at them. So stupid and servile. All this is natural and eternal. So he has nothing to worry about. It is divine grace that has brought him to this place. It is manifest destiny that he continues this tradition. And I mean, if he enjoys a couple perks in his quest to civilize them, well, surely it's just justice. The colonized should be grateful. Christopher, benevolent master of the natural order. Don't question it. And really, this is why Amos Isaiah was right to say that colonization dehumanizes even the most civilized man. It inevitably tends to change him who undertakes it. That the colonizer, who in order to ease his conscience, gets into the habit of seeing the other man as an animal, accustoms himself to treating him like an animal, and tends objectively to transform himself into an animal. No offense to animals, of course. I'm just quoting Cesare. <laughs> um, on the flip side of the coin is the colonizer who refuses. John. You see, not every colonizer becomes a colonialist. John tries to resist the rule, but he is still a colonizer. He tries to ignore his position of privilege but he cannot escape mentally from a concrete situation. He cannot refuse the ideology of colonialism 
while continuing to live with its actual relationships, while continuing to benefit from the privileges he half-heartedly denounces. See, colonial relations can't be boiled down to individual feelings. So it doesn't matter much materially if John accepts or rejects it. It doesn't matter if he feels guilty or not. His identity is fundamentally defined in relation to colonization. He's still part of the oppressing group. He shares in their good fortune and will likely share in their fate. Amy Cesar makes it clear that the truth is, between colonizer and colonized, there's only room for forced labor, intimidation, pressure, the police, taxation, theft, rape, compulsory crops, contempt, mistrust, arrogance, self-complacency, swinishness, brainless elites, degraded masses. No human contact, but relations of domination and submission, which turn the colonizing man into a classroom monitor, an army sergeant, a prison guard, a slave driver, and the indigenous man into an instrument of production. Even if John is a leftist, a progressive, trying his best to assist the national liberation of the colonized peoples, he's still in a rough situation. Of course, not many colonizers have actually been, you know, about it like that. But even if John was to create a world for colonization, it may be hard for him to picture his situation changing all that much. He's accustomed to privilege, and so equality is probably going to feel like oppression. He can't imagine not being who he is with the comfortable domination of his culture and language. He's never had to accommodate others before. He's never had to think, oh wait, maybe I should try and learn their language, try and incorporate elements of their cultural mores. He still holds the subtle vestiges of the racist ideology that his country was built on. And he will have to fight his own class interests and his own fellow colonizers revolution would require the decimation of his current identity and the rebooth of another. And that decision, that gargantuan task, would be too challenging for some people to undertake. So Mia, what do you think of the position of the colonizer who accepts and the colonizer who refuses? One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that the original concept of privilege was something that came out of like this specific kind of analysis. It was about like uh, like it was it was it was about uh, French settlers in Algeria, and you know it, it was it was it was it was it was originally something along basically along these similar lines where it's like it doesn't really matter what your ideological beliefs are if you're sort of like a French settler in Algeria like you just automatically have privilege that like other people didn't and this has been sort of like I don't know I, I like the, the original sort of context of what this analysis was has been sort of worn down but I think I don't know like I think I think it is colonizers like this is this is a structural position right like you know the 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 sort of you can't sort of individualism your way out of a structural condition yeah and i think that's something people sort of have this incredible capacity to sort of believe about themselves and it's just not really true and that's something that's very difficult to sort of like actually substantively confront but i think it's why this analysis of stuff is useful Exactly, exactly. 
it's it's not enough to just say, oh, well, I don't think this is right. I think this is wrong. That doesn't change anything materially. Um, it's when you act to challenge, to dismantle, to confront, um, and to act in solidarity with those facing those challenges in a material way that any of it really matters. And I think it was particularly pertinent. And of course, Mami is writing this and Césaire wrote in a time when colonization was really at, or rather the confrontation against colonization was really at its zenith. Um, and so for those of us in the 21st century, in 2023 now, who are looking back, we're saying, we might, we might think, oh, well, surely this is a dated analysis, a, a dated way uh, of looking at these relationships. But upon further inspection, it really continues to be quite topical. When you look at, for example, self-proclaimed allies, looking at how Mami discusses the colonizer who refuses really gives you a sense of, I think at least, how far you need to be willing to go in your allyship versus how far most people have reached. Even today, we can ask ourselves, um, and those who maybe see themselves a bit in the colonizer who refuses, ask yourself, how far, I mean, you may recognize your privileges even while still, you know, in, enjoying them, but how far might you be willing to go to see an end to this system? We speak about how the loss of privilege can make equality feel like oppression. But truly grappling with that, what would it mean for, for example, English to no longer be the dominant language? You know, what, what would it mean for us to get used to a world in which we might have to learn another language? It's something I've been thinking about recently, even while occupying the position of a colonized subject. I speak English, and that is a privilege. I speak English natively. And I mean, I'm trying to learn another language. I'm trying to learn Spanish, which is another colonizer language. Yeah, that, that, that's sort of one of the other things. It's like, you know, for me, it's, it's like, okay, you have English, it's this colonial language. You have Chinese, which is like also a colonial language. And I learned some Spanish. And it's like, well, all right. And the, the third colonial language has struck the towers. Yeah, exactly. And this is when we get into this sort of discussion about like actually post-colonialism and anti-colonial struggle and how you go about anti-colonialism, right? Because there is one of the different approaches one could take, different paths I suppose we could follow. There's an anti-colonial approach where we could say, you know what? Let's just try and recreate pre-colonial society, right? So everybody tries to learn the languages that they feel as though they might have spoken, if not under colonial system, uh, if not, if colonial history had not happened. Uh, and then we try to re-implement those languages and reimpose those languages and 
dismantle certain institutions and structures and, and whatever the case may be. Try to basically erase the impact of colonization from history. And then there's the, another path where we recognize, well, maybe we cannot undo colonization. And truthfully, we can't, right? But going forward, how do we intend to dismantle and to rework and to create anew? You know, taking from the past to build the future, but not being bound to that past. How do we, for example, let go of certain binds on language or certain ways of communicating or certain ways that we organize systems or certain customs and roles and obligations. And I'm veering a bit from uh, the intended topic of psychology of colonization, but I, I do want us to think about whether what role we've regardless of what role we see ourselves in in this discussion, how do we pursue an anti-colonial future? What does that look like? What path should we be taking? And how might that path chafe against our current identity? How might that path chafe against our current privileges, our, our current comforts? Yes, we are, as workers, uh, all oppressed and exploited, but at the same time, as we recognize, there are certain privileges that some have over others, whether it be in the realm of race or gender or ability or language. And if we are going to be pursuing anti-colonialism, we have to ask ourselves, how might those privileges be affected? And have we truly confronted our comfort level with those privileges being affected? And I think that's part of the broader effort of decolonizing the mind and what I speak about in my video on why revolution needs therapy, the idea of like really truly breaking down a lot of these ideas that we have about ourselves and about the world and questioning all of it, deconstructing, reconstructing all of it. But then when I get too far, of course, Césaire called colonization thingification. So let's turn our attention now to those things. Let's discuss the situation of the colonized, in this case, Candace and Nat, defined by the images and myths that surround them and tell them who they are. The colonized have no way out of their condition within the colonial order. They're not free to choose between being colonized or not being colonized. They just are colonized. And so Con Candace understands this. In her whole life, she's had to grapple with the negative portraits of herself that were created by the colonizer. All the images that were used to support the colonial situation that raised the colonizer and humbled the colonized. That justified the colonizer's privilege. That painted the colonized as inert and the colonizer as active. That made it seem as though the colonizer so the colonizer was doing the colonized a favor. 
that their labor was actually, and their employment was not actually necessary, that it was charity that the colonizer was bringing to their otherwise lazy masses. Being exposed to that kind of messaging from a young age really does a number on people, not just in the realm of colonization, but in other spheres as well. We see that with patriarchy, of course, how messages from an early age affect how boys and girls and others perceive themselves and perceive the world around them and perceive others. In the colonial context, this means that some who are colonized end up internalizing and accepting wholesale the messages that they're receiving. So Candace thinks to herself, perhaps the colonizer's right. Perhaps we are lazy. Perhaps we are stupid. Perhaps we are timid and weak. And this degrading portrait ends up being accepted. It's usually one of the final steps of colonization, the colonization of the mind. Once the colonized begins to tolerate rather than resist colonization, all they can really look to do is attempt to assimilate, which is impossible by design. It does mean that Candace won't try. She sheds the memories of her ancestors and the practices and institutions of her culture. She embraces the colonizer's will and all its institutions as right and just. The colonizer's salve and the colonizer's whip. The colonizer's god and the colonizer's school. Her children are sent to these schools built by the colonizer to erase and replace her people's history, traditions, and language. She and her kin are imbued with double consciousness. She's trapped in the sunken place, performing for the colonizer in a home country that now feels foreign. Double consciousness is a particularly useful concept, uh, first coined by W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. He was speaking specifically about African-Americans, but the concept does apply in other contexts as well. Double consciousness is the dual self-perception experienced by subordinate peoples in an oppressive society. It is looking at yourself through your own eyes and simultaneously looking at yourself through the eyes of a racist society. Looking at who you are and also looking at what the dominant society sees and thinks of who you are. Of course, Du Bois' concept was further built upon and you know people speak about her things such as triple consciousness and in some ways the idea of double consciousness uh, is can, can be tied with the conversation of intersectionality. But there are those who experience that double consciousness and rather than reasserting their view of themselves and their people, they accept the negative view held by the dominant society. They surround themselves with the language of that dominant society. Candace's world, from the street signs, the documents, to the courts, to the bureaucracy, to the industry, all use the colonizing language. While her mother tongue, the one used tenderly by her ancestors, the one that sustains her innermost feelings, emotions, and dreams, 
is devalued and degraded. Candace loses far more than she gains. Her history, her culture, future. She rejects herself, self-love, and liberation. Itself. She rejects herself, self-love, and liberation itself, attempting to model herself after the colonizer, or rather crush herself into conformity. She gains self-hate, shame, and alienation. She sees her own people through the eyes, the condemnations and accusations of the colonizer. She's atomized and estranged from her people and rejected by the colonizer, utterly defeated. But Remy offers another path, an alternative mindset in the colonized who refuses. You see, like Candace, Nat knows that there will never be emancipation within the colonial relationship. But unlike Candace, they know that there is no liberty in assimilation. Revolt is the only way out. An absolute condition requires an absolute solution, and there can be no compromise. Deliberation is a process of self-recovery and autonomous dignity. They must shake off the false images and boldly attack the institutions of oppression. But even in their resistance, Nat still bears the traces of colonization. They still share some of the values, techniques, and methods of the colonizer. They still speak the language the colonizer can understand. To be truly emancipated, Nat must work to rebuild a new, authentic, and self-assured identity for themselves and their people. Nat must reclaim and transform that which the colonizers consider negative, must take pride in all their wrinkles and wounds, never shying away from their colonization, but accepting it as a fact of their experience and their history, and yet overcoming that colonization. However, there is the risk of continuing to define yourself in relation to protest, in relation to revolt, and in relation to colonization. At some point, maybe not now, but at some point, Nat will need to move beyond that means of definition. What that future looks like is anyone's guess and also up to everyone to help build. I hope you appreciated this sometimes meandering dive into the minds of the colonizer and the colonized. The fight is not over. The psychological, political, and economic consequences of colonization are still felt to this day. The mentalities and conditions are discussed still exist in varying extents today. Hopefully this helps us to better understand colonization's impact on us so that we can deconstruct that Leviathan together to create a freer and more diverse and more humane world. Next time, I'll be discussing the role of national liberation in the struggle for freedom and what precisely that would entail, as I didn't have time to get into it in this part. (laughs) America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose. 
at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Good Happen Here. I am Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism. Last time I spoke about colonialism's effect on the psyche of the people within it. And today I want to talk about how a people under the thumb of colonialism go about deliberation and how that struggle fits within some version of an anarchist analysis. National liberation is a struggle against the relationship of exploitation and domination inflicted upon a nation. It's a struggle against the domination of one people by another often centered on questions of language, culture, welfare, equality, and land. It has consequences, and it's not something we can just stand by neutrally and ignore. In fact, ignoring national liberation struggles would mean siding with national oppression. There's no centrist take here. There is no both sides to the oppression of a people by another. Of course, that doesn't mean that national liberation struggles are free of critique or necessarily morally righteous. National liberation struggles are usually quite diverse. Within them, there are many tendencies at play, from the most reactionary to the most revolutionary. I don't know if any immediately come to mind for you, Mia. Oh God, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, you know, I, I, the thing I always think about, right, is like China's a 
Well, I, I, kind of unique. I mean, there, there's there, there's a lot of countries that where you get multiple like national liberation movements. China's kind of unique in that we had two nominally left wing national liberation movements, and like one of them, one of them is the KMT, who like the 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 end of their Natlib arc is like training a bunch of death squads in El Salvador because they'd gotten so good at killing peasants that like. <laughs> you know, this is what they're doing with their life. And the other one is CCP. And it's like, well, okay, like, great, great job, guys. Like, liberated. We've liberated a lot of people. We've like, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I think, I think there's sort of two ways of looking at that where it's like, you have on the one hand, you can look at it from the sort of like workers perspective where it's like, well, yeah, okay. So both the, you, you have your two national liberation movements and both of them end up machine gunning about a million workers, depending on, like you know, in, in offset from each other about forty years, but you know you have the Shanghai massacre and you have the Cultural Revolution, and then I think the other thing that's important when you're looking at like a Natlib movement is like whose nation is being liberated, and this is something you get with like Indonesia, right? Where you 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 have you have the National Liberation Movement, but then you simultaneously have like the occupation of uh, West Papua, yeah. It's almost like a Russian nest egg of, of, of national oppression. Like the, like Indonesia was being oppressed by the Dutch and then Indonesia ends up oppressing people in West Papua and East Timor and all those different places. Yeah. And, and you, you see this a lot with like, for, you know, I don't know, this is why like, I, th- I keep coming back to like whose nation is being liberated thing because it's like, you know, you get this with a lot of like the sort of pan-Arab movements and it's like, well, okay, we're doing like resistance to sort of like French or British colonialism. And then like, yes, this is, this is okay. If you are Arab, like God help you if you're a Kurd or like Yazidi <laughs> or like, you know, so yeah. there, there, there's, there's always these sort of, I don't know, you, 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 you have to be careful about who wins the national liberation movement. Exactly. Exactly. Because no matter where a national liberation sh- struggle is happening, there are most likely minorities that are not <laughs> en- encapsulated in that. You know, there are always going to be populations of people who are not of that nation within the territory of the national liberation struggle. And then beyond that, there are also within national liberation struggles, other ongoing struggles including class struggle. While the oppressed classes might cling to the national liberation struggle in an effort to defend against foreign subjugation and exploitation, the capitalist class is using that struggle for national liberation to consolidate their own power and monopolize their own exploitation of the working class. A lot of capitalists, their whole investment in national liberation boils down to, I don't like the fact that I have to compete with foreign capitalists. I want to compete with local capitalists so I can come out on top. And yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I think another thing that gets conflated when you start talking about national liberation, liberation of a nation, is the concept of nationalism, right? Nationalism is a program that has been proposed, or rather a suite of programs that have been proposed as the solution to national liberation struggles. Because I can't even say that nationalism is a single program. Nationalism itself is quite diverse, as we'll soon see. 
But nationalism is only one response, one possible response. It may be the most common response, but it's only one possible response to the national liberation struggle. And then there's also the terminology that gets muddled when you start talking about nationalism, right? Because as I defined, national liberation is the struggle of an exploited people against a dominating group or against their domination, just generally, not necessarily against one specific group. It could be multiple groups, but it's the struggle of a people against their domination. However, when you get into nationalism, there are forms of nationalism developed by oppressive groups developed by the oppressors. Sometimes they developed our nationalism in order to more effectively oppress the people they're oppressing. And so, and, you know, you could even argue that there are cases where oppressed nations adopt nationalism as a strategy for their liberation and end up pursuing a form of nationalism that is quite similar to that which they were being oppressed under. There's one immediate example that comes to mind, if you know what I mean. I have like nine, so I'm not entirely sure which one you were pointing at. But <laughs> Oh, nine. Okay, okay. What are you thinking of? Okay, well, okay. I, I wanted to talk about, there's, I think there's like a very, there's like a kind of Chinese nationalism that does this a lot. But this is, I think, a kind of common thing of like the, the one, one of the sort of responses to colonization that's pretty common is this really, really this sort of like like quintupling down on patriarchy, where you know mm. you, you, you like what because one of the effects of colonization obviously is like the this, this sort of like one of the sort of psychological things is is this sort of like. You know, is this installation of of inferiority into the minds of the people who are being colonized? And so, one of the ways people respond to this is by being like, "No, like the colonizers are wrong. Like our men are actually really strong, and like our men are actually incredibly manly, and like we have really, really like tight, powerful control over women." And you see this fucking everywhere, right? This is why all of like, there's so many sort of like Chinese nationalists who are so obsessed with like these videos of like like they're basically indistinguishable from american right wing videos where they're just like walking around with no shirts on and being like look at how strong i am and it's like you see you see this thing with like hindu wow. people too where it's like they they do like exactly the same shit like it's all over the fucking place you can see you can see the taliban doing this now too and it's like it, it's it's like it's you know it, it's it's they very is it, quickly is it that they're seeing colonization as emasculating yeah, yeah, and 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 that's you know, and, and I think there's there's this, there's this mode of like reactionary anti-colonialism where it's like they see it as emasculating, and they see the problem with colonization was it stopped them from being an empire. And you see you see this a lot with Chinese nationalism, where it's like, you know, like their 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 effective problem with like the century of humiliation was that they didn't get to keep being the Qing Empire and get to keep colonizing other people. And that's like a very I don't know I think I think that that that's a very common sort of like thing that happens when it's this is a very common sort of like ideological basis for sort of the right wing of anti-colonial well i don't know even calling them anti-colonial movements is kind of like being a bit generous but yeah i think it's a very common form of sort of right-wing nationalism that emerges as a reaction to colonization what immediately came to mind to me and what i was thinking of was zionism 
Yeah, that too. <laughs> now, to be fair, it was... Oh, rather, correct me if I'm wrong. It was a movement that existed prior to World War II, no? Yeah, yeah. Right. And then, you know, the experiences of World War II took place. And there were different paths that the movement could have taken. And I don't want to invalidate the beginnings of the movement, considering the experiences of Jewish people for centuries in Europe. Uh, and the oppression and the pogroms and so on that they faced. But well, we've seen the fruit of one particular path that that movement undertook. And that path has led to another nation struggling for its liberation, and that being the Palestinians. The common example of distinction um, used is that of the distinction between white nationalism and black nationalism. White nationalism having a very clear history of violent supremacy and colonialism, while black nationalism was established in response to that experience of subjugation and colonialism and with a desire for self-determination. The program of nationalism, specifically among oppressed nations, has generally seen the oppressed nation as a united bloc. Uh, national liberation movements, nationalist movements, nationalist movements typically ignore class, they ignore gender, they ignore religion, they ignore other divisions, for the most part, in favor of the development of an independent state, which is usually some form of capitalist, either state capitalist, welfare capitalist, or a neoliberal capitalist. And nationalism is often weaponized and promoted by the ruling class in order to unite the oppressed classes with their domestic oppressors, replacing foreign capitalists with local capitalists, foreign generals with local generals, and foreign government officials with local officials, in a word to conceal the importance of class struggle. You see often in the cases of newly independent countries, there's almost a brief haze of, or rather let me speak, not generally, but from my own knowledge of my own history. Trinidad Tobago um, gained independence in 1962 from the British. Uh, this was after a very brief period where we experimented with a West Indian federation, West Indies being a designation of the Caribbean by the British. The federation failed um, and so Trinidad and Tobago struck out on their own. And so Trinidad and Tobago became an independent country in 1962. And there was really a sense of, you know, joy and jubilant celebration because of that freedom. You know, we finally broke the shackles of the British. Um, however, it was a very, it was certainly a very constitutional uh, independence. You know, it wasn't an independence brought forth by violent struggle. You know, it wasn't, a situation like Algeria. Um, it was more so the British carefully groomed a generation of politicians and uh, political leaders that would, and business leaders that would take on the role that they were fulfilling in order to continue that colonial situation in under new management, essentially. 
and the more familiar management. And that very quickly became apparent to the population, which is why we had the Black Power Revolution in 1970. It was born out of the frustration that new management, where everything was pretty much the same. Many people who experienced the successes of independence and of nationalism that often bears that independence, they eventually come to recognize that nationalism was not enough. Nationalism has repeatedly failed to solve poverty, to solve oppression, exploitation, and suffering. While many states have become formally independent from their colonial masters, thanks to nationalist movements, neocolonialism perseveres. And yet, in spite of the continuation of oppression and suffering post-independence, you end up seeing some people's response to that being greater nationalism rather than an exploration of other options. So it is this result of nationalism that has led to its criticism and opposition by anarchists. Again, there's a difference between nationalism and national liberation. But in that criticism of nationalism, I see some anarchists, while recognizing that there are class divisions within a nation, end up ignoring national divisions within a class in favor of some ideal and united working class. The truth is that the oppressed classes of some nations have benefited from the domination of the oppressed classes in other nations. So let's not do class reductionism. Nations that have had constant war waged against them for centuries tend to turn to nationalism for their national liberation. That's obvious. I think, you know, it could cut them some slack for not thinking about the global working class when they're literally under assault for their national identity. When you're fighting colonial administrators and foreign armies, you're not studying the class war. Which is why historically, national liberation struggles using nationalism have ignored class divisions among the oppressed nation. But not always. Black nationalism, for example, uh, has always been a very diverse political movement with several currents and opposing perspectives within it. The common thread is, of course, a resistance to the dominance of the white supremacist system and the assertion of black sovereignty, recognizing that we have to free ourselves without waiting for permission, recognizing we have to protect ourselves from the continued assault of the empire, of the empire recognizing that we can be proud of and love our bodies, our minds, our heritage, a rejection of Eurocentrism. And yet some manifestations of black nationalism have been reactionary, capitalistic, homophobic, and patriarchal. Others have stood in stark opposition to those currents. In particular, revolutionary black nationalism, unlike other forms of black nationalism, has consistently stood in opposition to all forms of, of oppression, including imperialism, white supremacy, and capitalism. In my view, and as many other Black anarchists have noted, revolutionary Black nationalism has a place in the struggle, in conjunction with the struggle against patriarchy, capitalism, and the state, as we aim to prefigure a world free of all forms of domination. In spite of our critiques of how nationalism tends to manifest. It is not the only way to undertake national liberation. We can incorporate other fights within that struggle. We can recognize the importance of national liberation while staying true to our principles. 
Anarchism is an internationalist movement. It aims for an entirely new world, not just a pocket of change here and there. But we cannot be so focused on that international struggle that we ignore the very vital local and regional struggles taking place. Internationalism and class struggle are not in contradiction to national liberation struggle. I believe a real internationalism has to stand in solidarity with the working class and peasantry everywhere, including those of oppressed nationalities. However, at the same time, we cannot uncritically support national liberation struggles. We cannot afford to just write a blank check of support. It is necessary to engage politically with national liberation movements and engage in dialogues with all of their complexities and contradictions. Engaging with and uplifting the progressive elements within those national liberation struggles while criticizing the reactionary elements within those struggles. I think it's it's incredibly important to I don't know if intervene in them is the correct thing is the 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 best way to put it but like you know from 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 the sort of like East Asian perspective it's like yeah so we we had we had three successful national liberation movements like next to each other and then after they won their national liberation movements instead of like continuing the war against the US or whatever they went to war with each other so Damn. you know you have to sort of like Something, something, something very clearly went wrong with our Natlib movements when, well, I mean, obviously, like, okay, something went very wrong with Khmer Rouge, but like, you know. <laughs> that's, that's understating things, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, that, that's it, but like, you know, they're, they're like, obvi- obviously, the, the, like, the, the Khmer Rouge was fucked from the start, but, you know, the fact that, like, the US and Vietnam, like, the, the, the Vietnamese like army finally defeats the american colonizers and then basically immediately are invaded by china is a sign that like <laughs> something went terribly terribly wrong in the process of these struggles and that like i don't know <laughs> if if you're going to do this properly you you have to make sure that like this shit doesn't happen because you know it, it, it's it's a just the, the product of this is just sort of unfathomable human tragedy of a bunch of colonized people fucking murdering each other for like nothing or, you know, I guess like China's immediate, I don't know, geopolitical realignment with the U.S. in exchange for like industrial capital goods or some shit. So, you know, you got to <laughs> you got to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that means intervening. Okay, like you say, you don't want to say intervene necessarily, but it, it does require having these discussions early on. Like you don't wait until after a preventable tragedy takes place to try and prevent a tragedy. You know, if you're seeing signs of that, <laughs> the potential for that, um, you know, probably do something about it. If a movement is so fragile that a criticism of the way that it's structured or a criticism of an aspect of its ideology is enough to prevent it from succeeding, 
or prevent it from collapsing into internal divisions, whatever the case may be, then I don't think that it is robust enough to handle the struggle uh, for its for its liberation. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's like they're definitely you're definitely going to lose. Like yeah, if, like if, you, I, like, if, if, if it's descent. easy for an ally to criticize and you know maybe call something out and that's enough for everything to crumble how easy do you think it's gonna be for like your actual enemies to like come in and shake things up and like dismantle the organization from the inside yeah you know if you you don't have room for dissent from you know your allies from your compatriots then what about your enemies what do you think your enemies are gonna try and capitalize on they're going to try and fuel and empower that dissent and push it in different directions to even further splinter the movement. You know, it's 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 complicated. It's it's difficult. It's not something that I ever want to present myself as having all the answers for. But you know, I feel like certain things should be clear. You know. Um, Maybe we should try and prevent certain issues from getting worse. Um, if you see, like, for example, a cult of personality developing, maybe do something about it before that cult of personality has, you know, guns on their side and the full power of a state apparatus behind them. I mean, that's just me, though. Um, <laughs> a truly internationalist position, in my view, recognizes that Human unity can only be achieved through mutual respect, solidarity, alliance, and discourse among peoples. International revolution would require participation in national struggle for self-determination and human dignity against imperialist domination. It would require a shift, as I always say, in our powers, in our drives, in our consciousness. I think we want to have solidarity with national liberation struggles it really starts in that realm. And then also, I think there are ways that we can, as allies, intervene in certain aspects of that process. You know, in confrontation, lending, you know, material support to protests or occupations, in non-cooperation, supporting strike funds, in prefiguration, providing resources. You don't want these acts of solidarity to get lost in NGOs or in organizations or whatever you're trying to get things actually that's a whole tangent let me just scratch that entirely i'm gonna go off i'll leave off by saying that if we oppose male supremacy the patriarchy we must support women's fight against it that doesn't mean blindly supporting you know bourgeois liberal girl boss feminism It means listening to, learning from, and collaboratively developing the revolutionary feminist project to liberate all women from patriarchal domination, and ultimately, all people. If workers decide to form a union, in many cases, an existing union is pro-capitalist and hierarchical, and yet despite the structural issues with many unions, we still stand with the workers against the bosses, even as we try to convince them of the need for a transformation of those unions, of union militancy, of opposition to bureaucracy, 
in order to fully liberate them from class domination instead of merely engaging in dialogue with their oppressors. We can walk and chew gum at the same time is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. We can act in solidarity without being subservient to what we may perceive to be something that goes against our values. Solidarity, as I like to view it, is a discourse between peoples about how we determine our own freedom. We may disagree with certain things. We can critique certain things. Um, We've seen again and again certain mistakes being made over and over again in movements, and we can call them out. But, you know, you, you can have your principles. You can engage and you should engage in the complexity and contradictions in national liberation struggles. Offering critique where needs be, resisting reactionary, capitalist, patriarchal, and status elements when they manifest, and providing support in any way that you are able, in any way that they request that you be. People aren't a monolith. Think for yourself. All power to all the people. Usual things. That's it for me. Um, you can support me on patreon.com slash true and follow me on YouTube at Andrewism. This has been It Could Happen Here with myself and Mia. Peace out. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's It Could Happen Here. The thing that's happening is that Shinzo Abe is still dead one year on. That man has not come back from the dead. He is still absolutely the most assassinated man of 2023, 2020, 2022. You know, honestly, given how assassinated he is, we're, we're giving him the credit for being the most assassinated man of 2023. And what's interesting about this assassination, and we, we talked about, I talked about this really briefly uh, in my sort of intro thing to the last episode that we ran about. Uh, the Abe assassination, but this has been maybe the most successful political assassination not done by the CIA in the last like 70 years, like absolutely stunningly, incredibly successful political assassination because specifically of the political impact that the assassination has had on the Unification Church, probably better known as the Moonies. And how it's been forcing the sort of Unification Church aligned ruling Liberal Democratic Party of Japan to like <laughs> have a series of embarrassing scandals where they reveal their like incredible intertwinement with the church apparatus and all of the cult shit they've been doing. And with me to talk about this is Elisa Majub, who's an ex-Unification Church member who got out and who works with deprogramming imperialism, which is a group that tells the sort of Still untold story of how the Unification Church has worked with the CIA and the Korean CIA and uh, enormous parts of the sort of the, the apparatus of the American Imperial War Machine to cause untold suffering on the world. Lisa, welcome. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk with you about this because we didn't really. There's been a lot of very, very interesting stuff happening in the last like couple of months in Japan. But in order to do that, I think we need to we need to sort of talk about what this assassination was actually about. So the shooter Tetsuya Yamagami killed Abe because he couldn't get to a he was trying to kill a high-ranking unification church guy and he like couldn't get to him. And the reason he was trying to do this is that his mom had given I think like 70,000 yen to the church. I'm getting the number right. And had basically like, you know, like this is, I, I, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a bit about this before we go into more of the Abe stuff about how the church's financial abuse works and how, yeah. you know, how, like how, 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 how this person's mom was compelled to sort of like literally give away all of their money to this cult. Right. Well, um, I would say it's a sort of multi-pronged approach that they use. Uh, they'll basically, oh gosh. Okay. So one of the main things that they'll do is they will charge people for ancestor liberation basically is that they'll say that, uh, your ancestors are going to go to heaven if you pay us this amount of money. Uh, and they'll have people do that for like generations and generations back, um, in order to have their ancestors go to heaven. Um, uh, they do other spiritual sales, like the book. There was this one book from years ago that they 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 charge people exorbitant fees on, um, just because it 
was like some sort of like providential book of some sort. So spiritual sales are are definitely like a main a main focal point of this. Another thing that'll happen is that like they'll they'll labor traffic people just straight up um, yeah. into like a lot of the time they would do fundraising teams uh, where they would have people go out, uh, sell little trinkets and things on the street or flowers uh, and come back and then give all that money to the coffers of the church. Uh, another thing that they do is tithes. Uh, you're expected to give a certain amount of your income basically to the church. Um, and if you don't, it's like, they're not going to be like, they're, they're they're it's like sort of you know like you need to do better because you're not you're not doing enough for god kind of shit so they have like a myriad ways that they really push people into spending uh money on them and their organizations as well as having a ton of very successful businesses and capital ventures and whatnot they they make guns uh you name it and so it all sort of comes together to to this like very large uh wheelhouse of capital <laughs> yeah and and japan's so so i i i think i should probably I'm, I'm realizing i'm probably assuming that everyone who's listening to this has listened to the previous stuff we've done on the unification church and i don't know i don't know how true that is so i guess we should talk a little bit we should back up a little bit and talk about just mm. what the unification church is and I guess also the importance of Japan to it, because yeah. from everything that I've understood, Japan's like, you know, like they, they have a bunch of sort of businesses that they run in Korea, but Japan's kind of like their chief financial nexus. Like the last thing I saw, I think it was like, like they, they, they extracted like a hundred million dollars out of Japan in the last few years. Yeah, they, they get they get so much. That's their main it's their main financial powerhouse um, within the church. Um, and, and part of that is because the church claims uh, that because of the occupation of Korea, that uh, Japanese members have to pay more indemnity monetarily. So uh, everything with like, you know, all of the spiritual sales and stuff are just like exorbitantly higher for those members. And that is just an easy way for them to make a lot more money. Yeah, which which is always a part of this thing I thought is really interesting because you know the church and we've talked about this sort of at length in other places but they are like hardcore right-wing anti-communists yes um in like you know have backed a lot of i mean just death squads all over the world they backed <laughs> they, they like they they wound up backing pol pot because right. like doing iran contra twice wasn't enough for them but they gotta it, do it a bunch yeah, yeah. It's like once once you once once you once you've once you've done Iran Contra multiple times, like you gotta there are very few places you can go other than like into Pol Pot. But yeah. I, I think I think there's there's an interesting kind of game they're playing here because you know, on the one hand, so the the, the party they're allied with in Japan, I mean they, 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 there's like several parties they work with, but the, the their biggest backer in the government is Lib- is the Liberal Democratic Party and you know, if you want to hear me talk about the Liberal Democratic Party for a long, long time, go listen to my Kishi episodes on Behind the Bastards because that guy did one. So Nimitsuke Kishi is the founder of the Liberal Democratic Party. He is a uh, just <laughs> horrific war criminal. I uh, did like mass enslavement, stuff like that, like a truly, truly awful guy. He's like he's also the guy who just was in charge of like running the Japanese war machine dream. Uh, World War Two, and his grandson is is uh, Shinzo Abe, 
But there's this, I think there's this interesting dynamic where you have on the one hand, the Moonies are allying with these right wing guys who are either just straight up like a lot, like a lot of these the people they're allying with are straight up like Nanjing denialists, right? They're like, you right. know, they're 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 people whose lines on Japanese colonization are either that it was good or we didn't do any crimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes off pretty, pretty, you know, bold faced and ironic and just very obvious that this is a money ploy. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think it's interesting kind of politically, too, because, yeah. you know, like if, if you if you on the one hand push denialism, but then on the other hand, you turn around and you're the only people going like, hey, look at all these crimes your government did. Like, don't you owe like Korea so much? I feel like that's like it's a really like terrible and like it's just unbelievably cynical way of exploiting like the, the exploiting just the horrors of Japanese imperialism to get Honestly, money out yeah. of people. Yeah, it's it's very underhanded, especially given that uh, I, I feel like there is been some evidence that I mean, at least early church members uh, and those around them may have been collaborators at the time as well. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it's very disingenuous and a completely twisted way to go about anything. But people people buy into it and heavily so. Yeah, one of the ways they've they sort of done this is allying with the, with the Liberal Democratic Party. Um, so Nobusuke Kishi, who again is Abe's grandfather, like is the guy who brought the Unification Church into the party. And th- this was kind of a controversial thing because, okay, it was it was kind of a controversial thing not because the Unification Church is a cult, but because the Unification Church is Korean, which is like a dynamic that's at play here in this whole thing. Which is you have this weird. Okay, so there's like there's like two kinds of people who are anti-unification church in Japan. It's you have like the leftists who are anti-unification church because they're a cult and because they're, you know, like a, a sort of cat's paw of American imperialism. And then you have like these ultra right wingers who are like these people are Koreans and so we hate them. Which is like a I don't know, truly terrifying Japan dynamic. But <laughs> Kishi Kishi's able to sort of overcome this and he okay, so this is the part that I, I don't know if you know more about this than I do. So, every what, the, the stuff that I've seen about this talks about the Unification Church and the Yakuza kind of hammering out a deal to allow mm-hmm. the Unification Church to like do those specific kinds of scams. And I've always assumed that Kishi brokered this because Nobusuke Kishi also is very, very well connected with the Yakuza. Um, he's been connected with the Yakuza since like the 20s and 30s. Um, so I always assumed that he brokered this deal, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I don't know if you've run into anything about it. So um, I know that some of it has to do with Asami Kuboki, uh, I believe. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if initial links do come through Kishi. Um, I wouldn't I would not be surprised about that. Uh, I, I don't know where exactly like, you know, initially uh, th- I, that would make sense. That would make sense, honestly. Um, because like going back to the sort of uh, end of the Korean War and World War II, uh, basically how all these, you know, prisoners that were class A war criminals got, you know, yeah. <laughs> they got <laughs> let off the books because yep. they decided to work for America now. Um, and, and and basically these guys were the first guys who started like funding and financing and like supporting the church uh with like the help of like MacArthur and stuff. And then MacArthur, of course, is the one who got Moon out of prison. So 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of very the the, the LDP as a party is sort of directly like like directly it is formed by the Dulles brothers intervening with the sort of Japanese right and telling them like you guys all have to like you guys all have to put aside your differences and form this party so as to stop like even like a vaguely center left government from coming to power. Right. Yeah, and and the connections here are really deep. Like uh, Kishi. Kishi literally sells Unification Church, their first building in Japan, and that building is like his residence. <laughs> so they they are they are in deep and in it for the long haul. Yeah. And so multi-generation. And this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this has been, you know, sort of going on for a very long time. Even after like Kishi's like specific kind of like fascist corruption faction kind of eventually falls out of favor in like the 80s because they 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 cut a series of deals with the Americans that are like too corrupt for the U.S. That ends with like uh, it ends with a fascist porn star, I uh, like dry uh, att- att- attempting to do a kamikaze run in a yakuza boss by flying a plane into his house, which is which is a whole thing. But you know, th- so th- th- this kind of gets us to many generations of LDP, which is the Liberal Democratic Party, which is been the ruling party of japan for most of its sort of modern history many generations of this go by and you know there's there's i think a a really incredible symbiosis here where like the ldp has like consistently gotten them out of trouble of like stuff that like like they're they're you know there's a famous example where moon like shouldn't have been able to enter japan because he would have been convicted of a felony in the u.s and you know the the and there's also like there's been a series of investigations into uh, the church that have just gotten squashed because the LDP was right. like no. Yeah, they're too powerful. They're in with they're in with the guys who are running things. Yeah, and people and, to know. And I and I think this this kind of brings us to the immediate Abe stuff, which I think is really interesting. Which is that like Abe. Okay, so long ago in a galaxy far, far away, during Kishi's generation, the CIA was like literally running LDP elections. Like this, the CIA would go in with individual candidates and they would go in to sort of manipulate the vote. They would go in and they, they would have like CIA assets doing canvassing for them. And I, what I think is really interesting is that like from, from, from what, I, what I've seen, it seems like Abe basically replaced the CIA with the Moonies in, in the 2000s, where <laughs> he was having the church do exactly the same thing the CIA did of like, like, hey, if you ally with us, we will like, you know, we will like go district by district and campaign for you and like use our influence networks. It's funny how that keeps happening. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. so, yeah, it's really the, the sort of long arc of and but it's funny, too, because it's like like. Quite frankly, like at this point, I, like it, f- from the CIA's point of view, like I, it's utterly unclear to me if it matters at all whether the LDP or like their absolutely identical opposition party like comes into power. But there's still just this kind of like, <laughs> like the ghost of the CIA from like when they actually had to stop the communists in like the, the 50s, 60s and 70s, and I guess a bit through the 80s. It's just sort of still there and still doing like all of the same things that uh yeah same things and more (laughs) yep yep Uh, you know who else uh actually i don't think they've ever advertised on this show but uh you know who probably wouldn't be that out of place given the reagan coin people i don't know it's it's ads it's we're doing them i hope they don't suck (laughs) and we're back okay so this is something i i wanted to ask you 
How so in the last few months, there's been a lot of developments in terms of the reaction to the church in Japan and how the church has been reacting to the sort of swings in public sentiment that have been happening. So, yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you so how, how what, what's been happening inside the Japanese government since all of this stuff has sort of been coming out? So, uh, it seems to be that there has been quite a kerfuffle uh, because quite a few members of both the LDP and other parties have ties to the Unification Church. Uh, So I've got some stats here and forgive me if these are not the most current. I tried my best to find uh, the most current current numbers out here about this, but uh, I was having a little bit of trouble due to translations. Um, So uh, let's see, I've got at least... 334 uh, prefectural assembly members in Japan have had dealings with the Unification Church or its affiliates, with over 80% of them belonging to the ruling LDP, um, according to Kyoto News. So uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said that the government was in the final stage of considering whether to seek a court order to disband the Unification Church. But also, you know, his, his new cabinet, well, they've got some ties, okay? at least for lawmakers who admitted having ties to the church. The number of LDP lawmakers with ties to the church is around 180. And the Secretary General has said that 179 of the 379 parliamentarians reported with links to the church and related organizations. And these relationships have ranged from attending church events to accepting donations and receiving election support. And then at least 334 prefectural councils had contact with UC and related orgs. So there's a lot going on uh, that basically is there's a lot that has come out about who is involved. Uh, however, the UC is still pretty much just denying everything. The pretrial proceedings for Yamagami begin on October 13th. Uh, it's going to be closed door. So it'll probably be a while, a little bit until the information trickles out about that. Hopefully they'll have some like. I, I don't know if like what closed door means in that specific situation, if they'll have journalists in there or not, hopefully. Yeah. But yeah, it, a lot has been coming out and people have been calling for a lot of change, it seems. But how much is actually going to happen, especially when they're saying now it's going to be like maybe one to three years uh, for the deliberation on the case um, for dissolving the church which means that the church will have ample time to move all of its funds and yeah. set up new yeah. new lines of money funneling basically. Yeah, which I think yeah, I don't know. Like I I I have I have very little faith that even even this sort of like outswing of public pressure is going to like actually seriously cause the Liberal Democratic Party to like really go after the church because like I mean like Abe, like part of the reason Abe got assassinated was that like I think like in 2022, he 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 get he like he was like he like sent a video of of uh, to like uh, of a speech like to a uh, like to a main Yulan Unification Church event. I, th- I think it was the same one that it might have been the same one that Trump sent it to. Maybe it was maybe it was a different event, but like yeah, like I I don't know. I I have a difficult time. I don't know, kind of be- like believing that they're that like. This like even if this crackdown does come, that's going to be effective. I don't know. What, what, what right. are your thoughts on that? I'm excited that there is some movement in that direction. However, I do worry that 
it won't really make as much of a dent into the functioning of the movement as some people think it could, given that there seems to be a lot of time for them to recuperate funds. And they've been doing a lot of things that seems to make up for funds, uh, as well as the fact that they already just have so much money and so many funds in the first place. It's hard to say how much they even have and how much this would make a dent into it were it to happen. So it's it's hard to say. And I, I also do worry that that'll just sort of incentivize them to sort of further radicalize people in a, a very dangerous far right direction. And sort of going into that, there have been some sort of recent developments within the church since all of this has come out, basically, and people are calling for uh, some sort of justice and some sort of, uh, you know, understanding of what's going on, uh, which, you know, the church continues to deny. But um, recently, uh, Hak Jahan, who is now the leader of the mainline church, uh, has been meeting with the youth in multiple countries. uh, And recently at Japan, she sat down and told them that they are a kamikaze group, basically, to save Japan and the world. So Uh. I I can't imagine it's ever really it like never has ended well when somebody says that to when a cult leader says that to their constituents, it never goes well. Um, And, you know acts of violence uh, against oneself, like self-immolation or uh, other things, uh, murder have not been, you know, out of the realm of things that people in the unification of church have done in the past. Uh, So it does kind of worry me. Um, And she's actually, Hak Jahan is actually going to be meeting, uh, I believe it's the weekend of the 7th uh, in Vegas with uh, the youth of America. So I wonder if she's going to be saying similar things at that event. Yeah, I mean, that, that wouldn't surprise me. It would, it would seem, I, I have a feeling it seems to be since she's been going around and meeting, because she's also met with uh, the youth of Europe and the Middle East, that there's like a concerted effort here to sort of get youth engagement up, um, which leads me into a couple of other things here. Um I know that for a couple of years now, the Global Peace Foundation, which is under Preston Moon, has been uh, involved with like different like music festivals and things uh, with K-pop artists and stuff. Uh, but recently there was actually a, a, an event this year supposed to happen uh, called 2023 Korean Dream Festa for Korean United. And in the original poster, it was said that it was Global Peace Foundation that was one of the groups that was leading this um a lot of fans have spoken up and i know at least one of the groups has pulled out so clearly at least within that within that prong of the uc that there's 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 some very active like trying to outreach to the youth um which i think i think i would be able to say is pretty across the board at this point uh i think they're all trying some new strategies because they see that people are leaving and especially with the number of people that have been speaking up lately, they really want to keep those numbers and engage new people as well. Um, part of this also makes me think that might be why Sean Moon is doing the sort of like MAGA rapper thing. I don't know. Oh yeah. I, you know, I mean, he, could just, he could just be weird like that. Like, and I don't I, think that's totally possible. out of the question, but <laughs> yeah. But it, it does strike me as something that's like, hmm, maybe this is a way to get kids into the movement, you know, like, I, I don't really yeah. know. Um, part of me has also wondered why, if if that is part of why Caleb Maupin has showed up at Mooney things now, um, like, yeah, I, it, just yeah, uh, that guy, fuck that guy, but yeah. like, 
Yeah. It just makes me wonder about like different onboarding ramps that might be being tapped because uh, there's potentially, you know, like a little bit of a lull here and there's going to be a financial dip in this specific chain. I don't really know. I can't claim to. I have suspicions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes I think as a theory, it makes sense. Like, I mean, the unification church is the unification church has always tried to sort of stick itself into like different cultural trends. And I think right. like, I mean, I, like I, from, from, what I, from what I've understood, like I don't I don't think the last time they really tried the U strategy worked very well, like in the, t- the late 2000s, early 2010s. Right. Yeah. No, it, but, didn't, it didn't work particularly well. Uh, I wonder, however, you know, times are changing. If yeah. they happen to get one or two good strategists on board, that could change everything, honestly. But I, I also don't necessarily know that this is going to go well for them, seeing as that they are deeply uncool. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a real big issue. <laughs> like, that's the main issue <laughs> for like trying to get youth engagement up. I feel like, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's only so cool you can make it sound, which is nothing. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I, it is interesting that they're kind of like the Moppin thing specifically is really interesting because it's it's it seems like I don't know. It seems like they're trying to tap into this like the, just like what whatever weird currents of like new right like stuff they can get their hands on. Yeah, it seems like that honestly to me too. Um, and it's also specifically ironic considering that Caleb used to hit me up for information on the Moonies a lot before I figured <laughs> that he, he was a creep. He, yeah, yeah. And uh, before I figured out he was a creep and like not somebody I wanted to be talking to, so he knows all this shit about them yeah. and continues and and like willfully yeah, is engaging with them, which to me is just like mm. Yeah, it's like if you're if you're if you're gonna sell out, like at least at least sell out into a podcast. Don't sell out to a fucking cult. Like Jesus Christ, <laughs> come on. <sighs> it's just ridiculous stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's really terrible. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's the mashup we didn't need. And uh, this, I, I think this I, this is bringing to something else I wanted to ask about. So, uh, other than the sort of like you strategy stuff, ha- has there been? a reaction from like the rod of iron ministry or like the, the other sort of like uh splinter factions of the church to the, to the stuff that's been happening in Japan, like have, and also I, that's the other thing, like I, as best like everything that I've seen seems to suggest that the, if they were going to like, if they were going to disband the church, it would only be the main branch. Ha, has there been like, has the state been going after the other branches too, or so in that respect, I am actually still kind of unclear and have some research questions I need to resolve on that matter. As far as I've been aware, the other branches have been reasonably quiet about it. It doesn't mean that they're not internally doing things. I know that they both have large populations in Japan as well of membership. So it would make sense that they would be trying to figure something out. However, I don't actually know if legally they are going to be gone after the same way as the mainline church. And that's something I just need to clear up myself. But honestly, they haven't been speaking as much about it as I thought they might. That doesn't mean that they're not. It also just might mean that they're not publishing it, you know. Um, But part of me also wants to know uh, if the reason that, you know, Haktahan is coming to America that certain weekend is because that's the exact same weekend that the Rod of Iron Freedom Festival is happening. And she just doesn't want to get beheaded (laughs) by her sons who want to behead her. So, yeah, because it's like, oh, she knows they're they're doing that weekend. I mean, I don't know. Like, that's 
it's just maybe silly speculation. But at the same time, they have literally said that they want to behead her. So, yeah, mm. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't be. I would be staying be far away from them like, if I were her. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that 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 entire fight is really a like like no matter what it, it's it's either a like the, the, the eat popcorn let them fight or the no matter who wins we lose kind of thing. Right. Uh, it's just quite a mess. Like I can say that I have a lot of family drama, but nothing compared to this. Yeah. <laughs> Just wild. Yeah. So there was a a show that was originally going to be called The Devil's Whispers that was to be aired in Japan. But of course, the UC complained a little bit and they said that the program included a dramatization. uh, They said that basically they they claimed that this dramatized program, which was showing past tense of the group to recruit believers, including uh, hiding the group's name and door to door sales tactics disguised as charitable. First of all, NHK, the channel that was going to air it, first of all, changed the name to Dangerous Whispers instead of The Devil's Whispers. But the church also tried to tried to make them cancel like the show from happening and airing. Um, I, as far as I'm aware, I think it actually did air a couple of nights ago, though. Glad, 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 glad they got it through. But like the fact that they yeah. were able to get the name changed, like really, like, yeah, I'm like still. It's pretty ridiculous. Like maybe they changed it, but I think what they had said it was like sometimes in post production we'll change the name for whatever reason or something like that. But it's like, yeah. I, are you sure it's not because the church complained? Like, yeah, yeah. So I don't really Which- know. Well, and I, I, I guess, I, I guess, I guess, you know, one more thing I wanted to talk a bit about, which is that, and this is something we've been seeing already, is people talking about like, oh, you shouldn't disband the church on religious freedom grounds, and that's something that the UC has been really, really successful at sort of hiding behind when any, anyone tries to go after them. Like they, they did this in the seventies and eighties when there were campaigns to like prosecute them for just the crimes they were doing. Was that a bunch of sort of like, like not just not just right wingers, but sort of like. Like, like civil libertarian groups, like, like we're like, oh, you can't do this because if you if, if they go after the Unification Church, they're going to be able to go after like any religious groups. And that's just like not true. Like, it's just not true. These people are not like whatever you're, you know, in terms of sort of whatever, like the crimes of like a normal religious group group are like the church is not a normal religious group. They have been funding death squads for like longer than most of the people listening to this show have been alive and yeah i don't know i i i just want to sort of like like just make people aware that they're gonna try this shit again and it, it was it was bullshit last time they did it and it's bullshit now yeah 100 percent. and that's that's the thing that keeps annoying me uh, well it's not the thing there are many things about this that annoy me and make me very enraged uh, but one of them is that the playbook doesn't change. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it's very, very straightforward. This is how it's going to work. Um, I'm kind of wondering also if the cult is going to sort of like roll out new providential edicts that will like potentially be like, oh, no, this is going to be our new country that we get the most money out of. Or this maybe or something like, you know, just something that they're going to say that God has made it this way. So that like, yeah. You could change those money, money funneling tunnels. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, the only prediction that I can make that I'm absolutely sure of is that it's going to be wild and it's going to suck. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm not looking forward to how this is going to play out, honestly, especially given all of the like kamikaze squad comments and stuff. Uh, makes me it makes it makes me scared. It makes me yeah. not feel confident about the way that this is going to turn out. Yeah. I'm kind of of two minds of this because like I'm 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 ho- I'm hoping this will go well and this will actually work and that like even if the church tries to lash out it's like doesn't work very well. Um I I I do think also the way that this assassination has like been turning just random people like regular people in Japan who don't really know anything about the church against them has been really really interesting and powerful in a way that yeah. like was I mean, not not the I don't know. So, so we, 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 I've been saying this at like the top of the show, kind of as a joke, but like this really has been a very successful, like political assassination in that it hasn't, like it hasn't back it doesn't it hasn't yet backfired in a way that helps the church, and it seems to have really, I don't know. It's it's it seemed it seemed to have very powerfully achieved his objective of getting people to go. Wait, hold on. Who is this cult that is like? not i don't know running is maybe too strong of a word but has like completely embedded itself in in the in japan's ruling class right yeah yeah people are asking questions now yeah which which i think is good and i don't know i hope i the other thing i'm hoping is that this like people start doing this in like the u.s and in korea and in like just all of the other places that they've been doing shit like this, because this isn't yeah. just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, because it's been global, and there have been yeah. so many people that have been victims of this group that I know a lot of us uh, in America have also started speaking out about it, and the the media here has not been quite as interested in picking up uh, yeah. what we have to say to a degree. They have been, but it's usually you know sensationalized and made a little weird and just yeah yeah and missing the the main point (laughs) oh sorry yeah go on yeah like there's there's a really and this is something i like i've read a lot of sort of american coverage of this alongside the japanese coverage and i mean like i I expect this of the japanese well okay i I, I guess i i expect this of both like parts of the coverage but there is there has been very very little if any willingness to like talk about the church's connection to the CIA and their, you know, people will talk about them like as an anti-communist group, but right. Like, yeah, like they're, but they they're, don't take that are, extra step. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you have, like it's, they're not just an, like there, there, there are lots of anti-communist groups. I mean, th- there are no anti-communist groups that are good. Right. But like, there are lots of anti-communist groups that never funded death squads in like, not actually, what was, what was the actual number? Like 16. I had I had I had a count at one point of the number of countries they funded death squads in. But like like most 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 people haven't like like funded coups in Bolivia and like you know kept like allowed Iran Contra to happen by keeping the Contras in the war or like sent weapons to the Mujahideen like you know <laughs> like they they really they they really they they've I don't know like and I I I mean, I like. I guess, like, uh, you know, in terms of the sort of like, this is the bourgeois press stuff. It like it, like it, it makes sense ideologically why people don't want to talk about their connections to the CIA and like the operations they pulled in the U.S. and all of the just imperialism they've been doing. But it's it's really depressing because yeah, just, yeah. I don't know. It, it feels demoralizing sometimes because people only want to tell part of the story when it's like 
not too crazy and out there sounding for them. It's like, no, I, I, I tell you what, the actual story behind this group is crazier and more out there than you could ever imagine. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that, that's been an important, I mean, that's, I, I think why the work you're doing is really important because thank you. Like you have to actually make, like you're, you're one of the few people like actually making these connections and yeah, I really, I really appreciate it. It's, it's Thank really you. I appreciate that you appreciate it because it's uh, sometimes it's it's weird work to do. Like I, I just read a lot about of horrible things and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I was saying, that can take a toll on you to a degree. And yeah. sometimes I'll have to take breaks from it. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to go back to it because like I think it's worth doing because the stuff needs to be talked about. Yeah. So I guess um, do you have anything else that you wanted to say before? Um, I'll just plug uh, deprogramming imperialism. Uh, those two words. I think there's an underscore on our Instagram. Let me just double check if there's an underscore. We will put links to this in the description. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, fuck these people. <laughs> yeah, for real. They've done some really bad stuff. So hopefully, hopefully this is finally after like so many generations of terrible crimes they've been doing that this is finally the one that's going to fucking crush them. And we can hope, you know? Yeah. We can very much hope so. And the more people are talking about it, the better. The more people understand, like, the history behind the movement, the better. So thanks for having me. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah this is this has been It Can Happen Here. Uh, you can find us, assuming Twitter still exists when this goes up, on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at Happen Here Pod. Um, yeah, you can find sources at Cools on Media. Yeah, go 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 into the world, destroy imperialism, and crush the remains of these dog shit ass cults. <laughs> yes. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, I am also going. Cool. Let's go. Uh, Let's fuck it up. Mm-hmm. Maybe that should be our intro. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Keep it in, Daniel. Keep yeah. it in. Yeah, leave it all in, Daniel. This What's is how the, fucking the s- up my cool zone media. How I do it that's sometimes. A, that's a great question, Robert. Mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. one we'd all like to answer. The that's answer one, is, yeah, yeah Reagan. Uh, Reagan. Reagan gold coins. Yeah, we've got into a. Oh, a, that's just, what's funding, James. It's a common mm-hmm. mistake. I, mixing those two words up. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was because we we got into a mm-hmm. dispute about who is going to get the next gold coin that they send us. No, every uh, every month. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's what funds uh, our incredible work, your incredible work, mostly over at the border. Mm, that's um, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bef- yeah. Before Very and good, after, Robert. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Magic, you. man. Yeah. Right before and after I go, I dive uh, like Scrooge McDuck into my giant mm-hmm. pile of gold coins. Uh, yeah. And that helps me recover. But yeah, to- talking of the border, uh, I am not the only one with a giant pile of gold coins who has been going to the border uh, because a uh, friend of the show, Elon Musk, has also been... <laughs> Uh, taking Man, why yeah. you gotta bring him into this? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, suddenly Robert he brought himself into this. Yeah. Why uh, he gotta bring himself? Yeah, into yeah, this. yeah. Really, this yeah. wasn't my choice. Tr- Believe me, buddy, I would like nothing more than to never hear his name again. Uh, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, uh, or, dress- I I would like to hear it again. But specifically, I would like to hear the sentence from a news anchor: Elon Musk eaten by a crocodile. Yes, a, I was just thinking eaten a, by a crocodile yeah, yes. in a failed motorcycle stunt uh, in the Florida Keys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'd settle with like hippopotamus, crocodile, yeah. even sure. a co- any, cotton, any cotton large semi aquatic animal eating him would be pretty amusing. Yeah, yeah, if a manatee ate him, I'd be fucking pumped. Like, oh, that'd be amazing. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, we'd yeah. love to see it. Yeah, if anyone the one has... carnivore manatee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I've, it's been Anything training its whole life mm-hmm. for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that'll be on our next merch drop. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Okay, so yeah, Elmo, uh, like in some kind of I don't know, like punished Woody cosplay. Uh, it was a, it was very costumish. It was yeah, it yeah. was. We have a, a saying in Texas for people who wear cowboy hats and cowboy boots when they shouldn't, and mm-hmm. it's it's all hat no cattle, and that oh. is he is the definition of that. Like, yeah. And the aviator he glasses, is, I think, really punched it up. You know. Yeah. I, God. Yeah, he just looked like a bell end. Like I can't. It's really remarkable that he can be that wealthy and always look so <laughs> awkward. And like, like, you could just pay someone to buy you clothes, bro. And like, 
at least Jeff Bezos got yoked when he got really rich. Uh, Elon Musk still looks like Humpty Dumpty. Not to like. I, I mean, Bezos yeah. does look. Bezos looks weird as fuck. Like a, like, like a plastic they thing. They all look. That, I don't know. Weird. Mm, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, don't, well. I don't care about the fact that like Elon Musk is, you know, he's not uh, jacked no. or swole, but he's he's a, a not a wildly abnormal body shape for a man in what his fucking fifties. Like, yeah, yeah, gonna, he's older gonna, than I imagine. I, I, I will think, shit on him for playing at something he clearly is not, because no mm-hmm. man has ever been further from being a cowboy. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> yeah. He has very few cattle. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no shame in, in anyone's body shape. It's just funny to mock yeah. Elon Musk, I guess. Um, so, yeah, e- Elon turned up at the border and he decided that he was going to learn about the border. And the way that he decided he was going to learn about the border was by assembling a collection of cops uh, and one representative to lie to him about the border, uh, which many of you who follow things like journalism will, will be aware that cops lie, actually, mm-hmm. quite a lot. And uh, that is what happened here, uh, unsurprisingly. So I guess I just want to take this chance to, uh, A, update everyone on what's been happening since we last updated everyone, what's Mm -hmm. been happening at the border, and B, just address some of these myths. Um, I know something we talked about over the break was like lots of people between now and the end of the year will like be seeing family members who they might not see very often, and and they might not see them between now and the next election. And there are a lot of myths specifically about migration uh, that we will maybe copy in another episode, but I think there's some valuable stuff here that people can address. If if people in your circle ha- have been influenced by Elon Musk's citizen journalism, then I think it's really important to uh, just point out that it's all bullshit and so easily discoverably bullshit. Um, now, obviously, not everyone spends as much time at the southern border of the United States as I do, and not everyone lives on the border. Uh, Elon Musk doesn't live on the border either. And he clearly thinks that people who do uh, exist in some kind of Wild West Fantasia where people you know, wear cowboy hats and cowboy boots. Um, but mm-hmm. like for most of us, for, for many of us, this is our day-to-day reality. And so it's easy to go, I guess, and talk to some cops and like wave at some people who have been corralled up, like, like they're like cattle or some kind of animal like attraction. Yeah. Right, like not engaging with them as people. Um, and throughout this, right, like at no point in his little border screed, which I don't think you have to watch, by the way, if you haven't watched it, like I'm very no, happy. No, you're not, you're not going to like benefit from it. No, any, you won't learn shit. And, no, uh, but there is, there is a clip I found that's like a minute long on YouTube from the live stream <laughs> where the, like maybe like most... Ninety percent of it is him trying to flip the camera to the other side. <laughs> yeah, so that, was, that was that was very that. funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that yes, uh, real Iron Man vibes uh, yeah. from the guy who can't reverse his camera, and then he ends up just holding it <laughs> the yeah, other way around exactly. in selfie mode. Yeah, uh, yeah, this uh, inter- intellectual. That did give me a good chuckle. I won't, I won't yeah, yeah, no Titan Elon Musk. So I think the first part is that. When he starts to, well, first he says, as an immigrant myself, which is like, yeah, bro, mm-hmm. fucking, I'm an immigrant too. Uh, the difference is I didn't have to walk across the desert carrying my child and then be mm-hmm. detained in an open air concentration camp while people around me got fucking hypothermia and then questions about the legitimacy of my uh, uh, like travel and, and right to be here and then unable to work for years. Like, migration experiences are diff- different and you don't have a right to condescend to people who are often among some of the least fortunate people in the world, just because your mum was a Canadian citizen and you came here to go to school. Like it's not the fucking same. And no. um, I, I say this as someone who came here to go to school, right? Like my, that's, my... that's the, it's the same as if like I were to 
take a fucking flight from North Africa to Spain and be like, well, having migrated to Spain from Africa, like <laughs> yeah, it's clearly yeah, not yeah. a dangerous journey. <laughs> yeah, like, well, no, yeah. it's a completely different situation. Yeah, yes, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, you compare yourself to Amelia Earhart in the same yeah, you know, exactly. sentence, like, yeah. no, different. Uh, so yeah, like Elon Musk came to this country in a very different circumstance to many of the, these people. The first claim that's made in this video, which is, which is bullshit, is the, this quote-unquote open border policy. Now, at no point do any of these like old men in hats define what they mean by open border policy. And that's because it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. There is no open border policy. There has never been an open border policy. Biden's border... So I was in Tijuana at the, the Ped West, if people know where that is. So at that point in time, on the day Biden was inaugurated, I was there, right? I was there because a large group of migrants were waiting to see if Joe Biden would change anything. And they had been stuck in Tijuana for months, years in some cases. I spoke to people who had been sexually assaulted. I spoke to people who had been robbed. Uh, I spoke to people who lived in fear for their lives, right? And they were not safe in Mexico and wanted to come to the United States. And they had seen the way Biden campaigned and they hoped that he would do something better. Did he? Fuck no, he did not. For years, he continued the same policies that Trump put in place in COVID. Uh, Biden Title 42'd more people than Trump did, right? The Title 42 policy was in place for much longer under Biden than it was under Trump. It It's completely untrue to suggest that Biden at any point in his presidency opened up the border. Um, What did happen in May, as people will be aware, is that Title 42 ended. It didn't end because Biden decided it had to end. It ended because the emergency for COVID-19 ended. And Title 42 is not immigration law, it's public health law. And so with the end of this policy... That, that allowed the government to do things it would not normally be able to do because it was a quote-unquote emergency, they were not able to do this extraordinary and extraordinarily cruel thing, which, which was Title 42, right? That wasn't a Biden choice. That, that, was an, and that was a decision forced upon him. Indeed, the Biden administration defended Title 42 in court. What has happened since then is that migrant numbers have dropped. They have decreased since the end of Title 42. That's because lots of people saw the harsh anti-migration rhetoric that was coming from the Biden White House, right? Mallorcas out there spouting stuff about bans. You'll be banned from seeking asylum for five years if you're caught crossing between ports of entry. And that led to people thinking they had to cross before the end of Title 42, right? Now, what Title 42 did do is create a massive backlog of asylum applications because we weren't processing those applications and we were bouncing people back to Mexico where as I've hopefully already illustrated, they were not safe. They didn't feel that that was a safe third country for them. Um, And so in the months after Title 42, those people have tried to cross and to to make their asylum applications, right? They're supposed to use an app called CBP-1. As we've documented in very great detail, that app is completely unfit for purpose. Um, People can listen to my Title 42 episodes. They can listen to the interview where I did with Jake and Austin about CBP-1 the issues with it are many. The facial liveness scan that it does doesn't work for people who have darker skin. Uh, it requires Wi-Fi. It requires internet connectivity. These are things that not all migrants have and that the migrants who do have tend to be richer and tend to be whiter. So it facilitates a certain type of migrant. At one point in, uh, I believe, April of this year, 40% of the CBP1 applications that were 
CBP-1 appointments that were made for asylum applications were made for people who spoke Russian. People who spoke Russian are not 40% of the migrants. That was in Tijuana. And I guess what that means is that people who, you know, especially in my experience, people from African countries are unable to apply for appointments using CBP-1. Also, it's only available in a couple of languages or three languages, I believe, English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole. Um, if you don't speak those languages, it's going to be a lot harder. There are many other issues with CBP-1 and other apps that DHS uses. But what has happened since the end of Title 42 in May, right, is people have tried, this backlog has begun to sort of, uh, people have started to try and present their applications. And what's happening now is that people are crossing in very large numbers. That's not untrue. That happens at this time of year. So the last kind of quote unquote normal years we had uh, were, I suppose, 2018 and 2019. If people cast their minds back to the November of 2018, you'll remember that was the Trump midterms. And you'll remember the quote unquote migrant caravan that arrived in Tijuana at that time with thousands of people. The reason that people are always traveling at this time of year is because it is easier to travel in the months that are not as hot. Right? So we will see more people arriving in the next few months. That's part of seasonal migration. It's because there's demand for work. Uh, if you're working harvesting things right, as a day laborer, that happens at the end of the summer. Um, this is part of a normal and natural cycle. People have always traveled since human beings have existed uh, to, to take advantage of different conditions, different access to resources. But the idea that at some point Biden instituted an open border policy is nonsense. Biden has closed that border, right? He's built walls through Friendship Park. He's built walls in Texas. He's built walls in California. He's funded DHS more. Uh, that that border is certainly not open. Um, the large groups of people that you are seeing going through the asylum process uh, under U.S. immigration law, as they have under every other president, right? They come into the United States they do an initial interview and they're released with a notice to appear in court. Um, that's always been the case. Now, are those notices to appear for dates that are further in the future now? Absolutely. Um, and that's because our system is backlogged, right? Because we spent all our fucking money on giving Border Patrol the Black Hawks, giving our cops tanks, whatever it is that we spend our money on. Uh, we haven't spent it on making it easier and quicker for these people to get their asylum claims adjudicated one of the claims that they make in the video, I'm, I'm skipping out of the order that they make them in, is that uh, the rep he's speaking to a representative uh, who's a representative for the southern border region of Texas. He's in Eagle Pass, Texas, right, which is an area which has seen a lot of migration. The, the guy says there's no repatriation here. Of course, there isn't any repatriation there. That's not what happens in Eagle Pass, right? People come. Some of them will be immediately repatriated if they are found to be uh, for instance, I know that in May, somebody who was found to be on the United States terrorism watch list tried to enter the country, that that person wasn't released with a notice to appear, right? That person was immediately bounced into either returned to their country or more likely in their case, incarcerated. Some people will be detained there. Some people will be, re be repatriated there. But that's because like Del Rio, Texas or Eagle Pass doesn't repatriate people that's not their role. The courts are the ones who decide who is eligible for asylum, right? And it's worth noting that this fiscal year, so that's through August of 2023, um, uh, we're recording in October, but I couldn't find September stats. Immigration judges have issued removal and voluntary departure orders for 39.4% of completed cases, totaling 223,570 deportation orders. So it's absolutely ludicrous to say that there's no repatriation. 
nearly half of those cases when they come to court result in repatriation. Uh, it's uh, the, 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 the representative claims that he called the president of Guatemala and the Guatemalan president said, we'll take people back. Great. Of course they will. That, that's how international law works. Uh, it's not the Guatemalan president's job to decide who is decide who is allowed asylum in the United States. That's the job of the immigration courts. They are deeply flawed, but uh, it, it's ludicrous to suggest that these people like, are not being sent back because a deeply problematic number of them are being sent back, often to very dangerous situations. Yeah. And I think it's uh, it's deeply misleading and uh, and it's troubling to see like elected officials making these claims. I know that elected officials just lie to you know to 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 reinforce the narrative but it's still troubling another claim they were like he was really shocked uh that people were playing golf next to the border the u.s border is thousands of miles long like we live like for those of us for whom it's not like an oddity to come and cosplay at it's where we live and of course we do stuff near the border because it's our home like I was camping near the border this week. I ride my bike near the border all the time. I, uh, there are other golf courses near the border. There, there are parks near the border. And there's a Tommy Hilfiger discount store near the border in San Isidro. Like, yeah, it's it, it's it's our and home. This, yeah, yeah. It's uh, this is something that um, when we were at the Butterfly Sanctuary, uh, a friend of ours who had kind of lived on the mm. border for forever, yeah. um, Mariana brought up a lot, which is that like prior to the you know. September 11th in particular, these were just like communities. Like the fact that there was a border was more theoretical than, mm -hmm. than anything else. You would cross pretty free. I had friends in Southern California that go into Mexico for the weekend. You didn't have a passport yeah. or anything. And like families, you know, would cross to be with each other and stuff. Like it was yeah, not the way it, it is. Even post 9-11, like for those of us who are fortunate enough to have Sentry, which is an expedite, you can skip the line basically because you've been pre-cleared. Uh, I, I go to... Tijuana to have dinner pretty often. Like I'll take the trolley down there and then walk through with my bicycle and then ride my bike to the, the gastro park or something, have dinner, have a couple of beers, ride my bike back, take the trolley back. It's a nice evening. Uh, yeah. Do it it used all the to time. Be, I mean, I don't know how common it is now, but like a lot of like people that work like nine to five retail jobs or whatever it is, they would just like leave Tijuana and come back. Like my dad, my dad had hired a bunch yeah. of those workers yeah. and it was just like normal. It was very normal to do that. Uh, More so now because San Diego is less affordable than it ever yeah. has been. Like, it, um, yeah, I think the people that don't live near a border or like believe the ridiculous claims made about it, they I think they imagine the border is like in this barren wasteland and it's just like a chain link fence or something. I don't think they understand what it actually is. If well, I'm being honest, they they imagine yeah, yeah. like this desolate, yellow filtered scene from Breaking Bad. Yes, and, exactly. Like yeah. movies like fucking Sicario, right? Where it's just this mm -hmm. constant series of gunfights and like mm -hmm. like violence occurs on the border. It's the same thing. It's yeah. actually a version of the same shit that's happened with like San Francisco and Portland, right? <laughs> yeah, you'll have yeah. like a riot on a block, or you'll have like a store get robbed, and then people develop this because it gets so hyped by the media there's that you can't go into these cities they're death zones you know <laughs> i was like no man like fucking it most it, most of its nature right like that's the fucking border um yeah, anyway it's just a place like yeah uh it, it's it's not in any way remarkable like that and um, the primary danger is the fact that people are stopped from having access to like things like water that they need yes um, yeah by the state 
So maybe it's a good time to talk about some of the dangers that migrants are facing right now. In the last mm -hmm. couple of weeks, since maybe since we last recorded, uh, I believe five migrants have been shot on the southern side of the border. Mm -hmm. um, people, so like, like this week in Southern California, it was much colder. I know it's hot in lots of parts of the country. It wasn't here. We had rain. Uh, we're recording on um, like the first, second of October. Um, but like last weekend was very cold. I was in uh, a camp near Hakumba on Friday night, um, through late Friday night, maybe into Saturday morning. And it was cold. It was wet. Um, temperatures were getting like into the single digits Celsius, into the 40s and 50s Fahrenheit. Uh, when it's wet and it's that kind of temperature, that's when you start worrying about people getting hypothermia, which is exactly what happened, right? People were sick. People had to be evacuated. Uh, I, on Friday night, I was heating up milk for a baby, uh, like a tiny little baby in my camping stove like, so that the baby could have milk at like not freezing temperatures, right? Um, I gave someone my Gore-Tex jacket. Uh, uh, I was there with James and Jacqueline from Border Kindness and some other friends. Uh, I know some of them listen to the podcast and it, it makes me really happy that people who listen to this like take the time out of their busy lives to show mm -hmm. up and help other people like that's one yeah. of the coolest things that yeah. about what we do um, we're very really... proud of those people and everyone else you know yeah uh, pick up the slack come on guys yeah like i know on that topic like there are relatively few of us it's a it's a very remote area where we were it, it, it's so fine it's you know you need a truck to get to it maybe uh, a decent clearance car would be fine but um there were like six of us at one point. It is not easy to do that day in and day out. It really affects you to see someone's little baby sleeping in the dirt and they're asking you like, you know, can I have a jacket? And you've already given someone your jacket. Can I have a sleeping bag? And you've given away all the sleeping bags you have. Like, uh, it, it's fucked. It's not good for you. And I know it's taken a toll on those people and it would be great if more people could come. Um, as James and Jacqueline said, we're vetting everyone because there are people who would like to do harm to migrants uh, and people who don't like migrants. And uh, so if you go back and listen to that episode, all the relevant links and email addresses to volunteer are there. Even if you just send money, uh, it's better to send money than to send stuff. We've had a ton of, I spent a decent chunk of Friday afternoon going through donated stuff. Some of it was great. Some of it, I'm afraid, like if it, if a jacket is, uh, has giant holes in it for you, it also has giant holes in it for someone who's less rich than you. And it, it doesn't keep them any warmer than it keeps you. Right? So like, you know, it's better if people send money, but that's taken its toll on people. It's taking its toll on the people in the camps too. Not to say that they're not in very good spirits. Like it's, so I was there at about 10 o'clock at night when people, what happens, right? Is people walk around the gaps in the wall, which again, uh, didn't come up in, in Elon Musk's video, right? There were giant yawning gaps in the wall because they were trying to build as much of it as possible before the 2020 election. And so they skipped the hard parts. So people walk through where the wall stops. They're met by Border Patrol. Border Patrol then drives them. And I don't mean drives them by, like, puts them in the back of the vehicle. I mean drives them like you would drive cattle by going behind them in a vehicle and pushing them forward uh, and walks them into the camp, right? And then they arrive in the camp and uh, it's, it's like they arrive and, like, I was going up to, to ascertain, you know, what sort of group it was. Were they people who were in severe distress right like hypothermic or hurt or injured uh i know someone came later in the week who had a very bad injury who had fallen maybe trying to climb the wall um and so you're going to kind of triage that group right and some people were really stoked they're in america like uh and they wanted to give me like a hug or a fist bump and be like yeah i'm here 
obviously some of them weren't prepared. None of them were prepared for sleeping outside. And then generally, like there have been large kind of just shelters made out of cacti or brush or scrub or whatever's there, uh, which tend to be based around like national groups, right? Just people have their communities. So like there's one for Colombian people, Brazilian people, Punjabi Sikh people. There were Kurdish people, uh, Turkish, a lot of Turkish people, Afghan people. And so they kind of, because they can talk to each other, they'll be like, hey, come over here, Afghan friend. Like, you know, we, we'll look after you. We've, we've got this shelter set up. We've got a fire going. Get yourself warm. Um, and then those people can spend anywhere from one to three days there before they're taken out, right? Um, so, like, it's an extremely bad situation and it will only get worse as the weather gets worse. Talking of things which, which are bad, uh, should, should, we, uh, should we take this opportunity to pivot to things that people don't need to buy? Yeah, um, they definitely need to buy them, James, um, because pass. Anyway, here's ads. All right, we're back. Uh, hopefully you have repleted your pile of gold coins. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to return to addressing some more of the disinformation that Elon Musk got from Men in Cowboy Hats. One of the things they talked about a lot was that... Uh, they talk about numbers, right? They're like, oh, there are 2 million, there are, there are 4 million. Uh, at no point do they say what these numbers represent. Are these numbers net migration? Are they border crossings between ports of entry? Are they the number of asylum cases? Uh, are they the number of encounters that Border Patrol has had? Because as we know, right, an encounter doesn't necessarily mean individual. If one person crosses two or three times, that's two or three encounters, right? And um, they never talk about that because they're just pulling this shit out of their asses. Uh, like if, if you want information, these people are not the people to get it from. Not, none of them are even working in border enforcement, right? These, these were sheriffs that he spoke to. They talk a lot about how there are, quote unquote, two million of them, but the real number is four or five million because of the, quote unquote, gotaways, uh, i.e. people who have... Uh, not been processed at all, right? Who have entered between ports of entry and then are undocumented. This is nonsense. People don't want to be undocumented. Uh, People are here because they believe they have a legitimate asylum claim. They are fleeing violence, right? They have one of the, we've been over the five categories that you can get asylum for before on the podcast. I won't read them out again, but I have seen people, for instance, I saw one person who they were, transported to the hospital. The hospital let them out on the street in San Diego. They took a cab back to the border uh, because they, they don't want to just be floating around in the US with no papers, unable to work, worried that like a parking ticket or a traffic stop could send them back to wherever they'd fled from, right? Because they've fled because they're afraid of something and they don't want yeah. to be sent back. I think something that really bothered me in the video was how much they yeah. emphasized that like, remember, most of these people, they can be in... in- escaping prison they're all they used to be incarcerated i'm just like what like that's not it's just like this fear-mongering tactic that's so silly and trying to make people all believe that there's all everyone at the border are just like prison inmates essentially Uh, yeah the other side you all you often get is like well they're all young men heading over and a lot of this comes (laughs) to this like some of this is like racial panic. They're going to, you know, take mm-hmm. our women or whatever. Some mm-hmm. of this is like, you know, men are soldiers. You know, it's military. Yeah, military age yeah. males. Yeah. The reality is that like 
especially when you're talking about like the migrants who are crossing the fucking Darien Gap. This is an incredibly dangerous journey. Young men are generally a little more capable physically of it. And also it's, you know, especially given some realities of a lot of, you know, these cultures, that's who you expect to go and get, make money and send it back to their families. Yes. Right. Like yeah. that's that's just like it's not they're not invading you. You know, this is yeah. they're, they're, like these are the people who are going to work jobs and send money back to their families. Yeah, like we live in a society which is both patriarchal, patriarchal yeah. and misogynist, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're able to command a higher wage and they can use yeah. that to keep their families alive. I've spoken to lots of families for whom the young men left the country they're in first, earned money somewhere else, and then was able to raise enough money to get the rest of their family smuggled out or to facilitate their transport and then bring them to the US because they felt it wasn't safe for them there. Also, like if you're a military-aged male in some countries, mm -hmm. uh, Russia or lots of countries in the Sahel now, you could be forcibly uh, drafted right into any, one yeah. of any number of, of conflicts that you want no part of. Uh, and I wouldn't want to do that either. I'd want to leave, right? And I've spoken to people who have fled that kind of situation this week. So yeah, uh, the gender balance, I don't know. It's very hard to get a sense of the actual gender balance because Border Patrol tends to process women and children first, uh, and especially unaccompanied children, of course, first. Um, but it's very hard to get a sense of the actual gender balance um, without like looking at Border Patrol statistics and they take a month or two to come out, generally. Uh, they talk about people with teardrop tattoos. I would estimate that I have seen tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people at the southern border. I've never seen anyone with a teardrop tattoo like you have to be a com what, yeah they have it described these like hordes of people trying to get into your home or whatever yes i genuinely think that uh that someone like looked up i don't know like latino gangster on yeah. google images like like right before uh like racist google images or whatever like before they uh before they went down to the border like i've, I've never seen anyone with a teardrop tattoo you'd have to be a bit of a lemon to like present yourself for asylum with obvious like stuff like that um, yeah they're absolutely going to ask you about your tattoos. They'll ask you about everything. It's, it's just laughable. It's ridiculous. It's all based in myth and not in reality. And like, what troubles me the most, I think, is I don't know how many people have watched Elon Musk's live stream, right? Um, hopefully, most of them that did saw someone completely incapable of like asking interrogated questions or reversing the camera on his phone uh, or, or like dressing like a cowboy. But there has been, to my knowledge, no national network coverage of what's happening in Hakumba, right? There has been limited local coverage of what's happening in Hakumba. What there has has already stopped because like, it was a kind of one and done situation for a lot of uh, outlets, but it's not one and done for the people who are volunteering. And it's not one and done for the people who are still arriving, right? Like, there are. We're going to see more of this in between now and 2024. The border is clearly an area that uh, part, both parties, I guess, have decided that they can grandstand on. Biden can show himself as being "quote unquote" tough on migration. Like, I don't know. I don't want to live in a world where our leaders are tough on little babies who just walked across a desert. Like, that's a fucked up thing to be tough on. It could be tough on corporate corruption if you want to like front up to someone. And I think the Republicans are going to push on Biden being weak on the border. Well, there will be more migration this year than we have seen in a long time because we created a backlog, right? Because climate change is worse every single year. And uh, like, I think as we've documented extensively on our show, parts of the world are becoming less and less survivable. Like I went to the Marshall Islands this summer, they are mm -hmm. disappearing. 
Um, yeah. So, of course, people are going to want to come to somewhere where they feel safe. There are record numbers of people crossing the Darien Gap right now. Uh, that is something that will result in record numbers of people showing up at a border. Yeah. And for every, like, group of people who make it across the Darien Gap, there's there's folks who don't. Like, taking yes. that journey on foot without kind of access to modern quality overlanding equipment is like putting a bullet in a revolver and playing a game of Russian roulette. Like, it's extremely dangerous. Yes. No, not to mention that you'll be preyed upon, like, all the way. And yeah. They talked about the trains, actually, in that video as well, how the migrants control the trains. Uh, fuck off. Like, I have seen people who have lost limbs on trains, right? I, I, like, these, that's an incredible, jumping on a moving train is it's not an advisable form of transport. Um, and it's not a safe one. And the fact that people feel they have to take it suggests that what they are fleeing feels even less safe to them, right? Like, I don't have children, but like, um, if if I was to take my kids and, and and grab onto a moving train, I would only do that if I thought the what I was fleeing was less safe than that moving train. Yeah, and to it's talk like about your last resort, literally, like that's how desperate you are to better your situation. It's not like yeah. um, I don't know. It just makes me the the rhetoric the rhetoric is all backwards about that. Yes, like when you look at what some of these people are, are fleeing, right? Like um. On Friday, I was helping hand out water bottles and I was there was a, a Punjabi man helping me, right? Like he was one of the volunteers who, uh, who who was like helping us to distribute food and helping us to communicate with people in the language they could understand. Very nice guy. Uh, and I was thinking about like the stuff that is happening in India right now, right? Like and, and the way that that country is becoming increasingly like monolithic, I guess, Hindu nationalist, I guess you could call it. Um, I think that's fair, right, Robert? Yeah. Yeah, like Modi, it's it's not getting any safer for them there. And I have seen tons more Sikh people than I've ever seen at the border mm -hmm. before. No, there was a, a, a I mean, fuck, it's it's not necessarily safe in a in Canada, right? Where one of those guys got murdered recently. Yeah, yeah, well that happened in America too, right? Someone shot up mm -hmm. a Gurdwara thinking it was a mosque because they can't fucking differentiate between different faiths and they saw a turban. Yeah, I mean in a, in Canada, I believe it was a Sikh man who got assassinated at the behest of the Modi government. Oh, wow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Western intelligence uh, led to Canada accusing India of Sikh activist assassination. It's a, a fella named... I just want to make sure, because this is a story people should... We, we may do some more direct coverage on this. But yeah, uh, there was a guy named uh, Hardeep uh, Singh Nijar, who was a Sikh mm -hmm. separatist activist and was uh, gunned down by two masked men in British Columbia. Jesus um, Christ. India denies that this was at their behest. But yeah, like this is and this is, by the way, is not just a thing that that India does political assassinations from authoritarian directed by authoritarian countries uh, in Western countries have become more and more common. Right. A lot of this started yes. with with what Russia was doing, um, the poisoning, the Skirpal poisonings and stuff. But like this mm -hmm. is growing more common as this sort of like rules based international order that I think to some extent we all kind of tricked ourselves into thinking existed increasingly breaks down. Yeah. But that's all to say there's a good reason why a lot of Sikhs might be trying to come into the US right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a good reason why I'm seeing so many of them on the border. Yeah. Um mm -hmm. there's a good reason why I'm seeing a ton more people from Russia, right? Um, yeah. And they don't want to go on record, and, and that's because they're very afraid, right? That they've come from a totalitarian state, which can hunt them down, as Robert just illustrated, anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, and so yeah. they don't want to talk, right? Um, I'm seeing people coming from Colombia, Honduras, Guatemala. Uh, one of the things that Musk was shocked about was that, like, 
not all these people are Mexican. I'm, I don't know how big he thinks Mexico is <laughs> and like what, what, what he believes the population of Mexico to be. But at one minute, he's like, yeah, it's two million a year. Like, like does he think Mexico is just like dwindling and there are like eight people left? <laughs> like, like, Mexico is a large country, but like, like it, it, it does not provide us with, with millions of migrants a year. Um, well, it's just make- more of that like comically impossible narrative right mm-hmm. like whatever i mean people and people are, are going to believe it it's just part of the show yeah and it confirms a lot of biases that always exist and i guess like, hopefully we've dismissed some of that nonsense and, and I, I don't i think people who listen to this generally have empathy anyway but hopefully this has given you some tools to talk about this to other people what i will say is like I call, I, I'm not a big representative caller. I called my representative to help with a migration case for someone from Myanmar uh, who asked for our help. She was useless. But maybe this is an area where like, the federal government has water buffaloes, right? big water containers. It has MREs. If these were American citizens and this was a hurricane or an earthquake, that shit would be there. It's not mm-hmm. because they don't think that they matter as much. Uh, San Diego County has declared an emergency and said they can't do anything. That's complete fucking nonsense. Uh, like they, they, again, they could if these were American citizens. Uh, they, they would if these people were l- like white wealthy people living in La Jolla. They're choosing not to because they don't think it will hurt them. And like it, it maybe it won't, right? But I think you can make a meaningful difference by donating your money because the only people who are helping are the dozen or so folks, uh, right, like who all convoyed out there on Friday night down a dirt road in our trucks and and handed out the beans and rice and, and Ritz crackers. But you can make a difference with your money. The border kindness links I'll put in the description again. Um, you can also make a difference maybe by calling your representative and shaming them because uh, this is a government-created problem. And the government, like, sticking its hands up in the air and being like, oh, no, what a surprise. We didn't know how to do it. Yes, you, like, they knew this was coming, right? These people, many of them have walked, you know, from, from Colombia. Uh, we knew these people were arriving. We've been putting this off since COVID for three years, since the start of the COVID pandemic, I should say. Um, COVID is very much alive. I've seen some people who, I don't know, like, obviously weren't able to rapid test everyone, but there are a lot of sick people coughing, right? There were people with scabies. Uh, there were people who were very unwell. Um, that Again, if you detain people in congregate settings and the only masks are the ones that we bring as volunteers, and that's going to happen, right? We'll probably get some infectious disease that they'll get to share with, uh, even if you don't care about other people. I'm sure it'll, it'll come bite you in the ass eventually, right? Uh, when when freaking chicken gunyard, that's not vectored in that fashion, but, you know, cholera or something rocks up in America. So... I, I would urge people to do something because so few people are. And the only people who are helping are mutual aid groups who are overstretched and stressed and tired and broke. Uh, and so if you can help, you should. And uh, well, like whatever that looks like to you, if you want to volunteer, that's great. Uh, I would urge you to go through the channels that are set so you don't just show up and uh, like get yourself or someone else in trouble um, or just make things harder. Uh, but yeah, there, there are meaningful ways that people can help. Very few people are. And largely, I think that's because the border exists as some kind of Wild West fantasy for most people consuming media in America. And hopefully, yeah, if you, if you encounter someone who believes that, this will help you give you a little bit of information, a little bit of uh, some tools 
to dismiss some of that stuff. Yeah. Dismiss and demystify, really, because it's, it's just mm-hmm. like this imaginary big bad wolf that no one really understands. Yeah, totally. Like It's nonsense that everyone in America is a migrant. Right? There are indigenous people here now mm-hmm. and there always have been. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people have some kind of migration story and like, I don't give a fuck if, if your great grandpa came here, quote unquote, legally, the, the barriers were not in place yet. There wasn't a wall when, when your Mima came from wherever she came from. Uh, but like in all of our communities, like this country doesn't work without the labor of recently arrived migrants. And like, I think if you look at the news, I go to places where wars are happening, right? That's part of my job. So, so does Robert. Um, you know, and the, the, then I see those people at the border. The, the the reason they're here is because they're fleeing something worse. And I think, like, maybe grounding it in that. I don't think anyone would want a little baby to be sleeping. In the, I know some pretty conservative people who were were pretty outraged by what happened in May, and it's worse now. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd, no one in their right mind wants a little baby to be shivering out in the desert. Um, you know, no, no one in their right mind wants a, a mother to be breastfeeding and sleeping underneath a cardboard box because that's all she has. You know, like th- that's not. Uh, if, even if you believe in this very liberal construct of America as a welcoming nation, that shouldn't be who we are and it shouldn't be how we treat people. And uh, if you believe that nations shouldn't exist and borders are bullshit, then no one should be treated like that. And uh, it's on all of us to help, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Anything else, guys? No, I think that's about it. Magic. Okay. Thank you for joining Mm -hmm. me for this heartwarming episode. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody. That's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Until next time, you know, stuff. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison Davis. This is going to be another episode in which we're discussing the Defend the Forest and Stop Cop City movement in Atlanta, Georgia. This struggle has always tied together a lot of the aspects that we focus on on this show between the collapsing climate, uh, political escalation, and how everything just feels like it's kind of getting worse. But through that, there's people who respond to this, you know, crisis of neoliberalism and band together and figure out how to sort through all of this shit. And all that is continuing as the city of Atlanta and state of Georgia unveil new state repression tactics to chill any resistance to the construction of this $90 million police training facility that we have covered in depth in this show the past few years. Uh, a few months ago, there was another three-part series about the sixth week of action in June. But new things have happened since then. Uh, the referendum has been submitted, so that is all in process. But the same day the construction was scheduled to begin, the state of Georgia indicted 61 people on RICO charges. RICO is an acronym referring to the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. This specific act is meant to legally target organizations. And organizations can relate to anything between, you know, traditional incorporated organizations or something as loose as like a pickup basketball team which is how the state is able to paint whole communities of people who are just connected by similar values as being a quote-unquote organization. The RICO Act in practice is basically a way to criminalize a whole community. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I do know lawyers. So for this episode, I brought on Mo Cohen, a lawyer specializing in state repression. So without further ado, here is my conversation with them. Mo, hello. Thank you for uh, joining me today. No problem. It's my pleasure. So in late August, the uh, Fulton County District Attorney and uh, other kind of legal entities with the state of Georgia unveiled a whole bunch of RICO charges against, I believe, 61 people uh, relating to the Stop Cop City, quote unquote, movement. Um, it's a it's part of like, like I said, it's an ongoing kind of campaign of repression that we've talked about pretty in depth before. And but before we get into the actual like RICO charges, I, I first want to kind of talk about um, the the raid that happened against the Atlanta Solidarity Fund earlier this year and a whole bunch of like financial crime charges that they've been trying to use to suppress the bail fund organizing. 
I think we, we've talked about this kind of briefly on the show before, but we've, we've never really gotten very much in depth about it. And I, from, from my perspective, a lot of these RICO charges are very much related to the repression of the Solidarity Fund. Mo, I, I assume you're, you're familiar with uh, the Solidarity Fund uh, raid and the charges against, uh, against the, uh, the, the Network for Strong Communities. I am. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about that, that uh, event? I think that, that happened in like May of this year, I believe. Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't a huge surprise. It wasn't, I, in my opinion, a very well-grounded or legally warranted indictment. Yeah. Um, and certainly the way that the, <laughs> the way that law enforcement went in to retrieve those uh, three people who were indicted was a little extra, particularly given the nature of the allegations. I think people who are accused of financial crimes don't typically get taken out with a SWAT team, but I don't think it was a huge surprise that um, the district attorney brought those charges because this kind of RICO indictment was anticipated. Yes. And those kinds of financial charges uh, or allegations of financial misconduct are sort of the predicate for bringing this kind of sweeping RICO indictment. Yeah. And I think like in like the weeks and months prior to the SWAT raid against the Solidarity Fund in May, uh, people at the Solidarity Fund were basically warning that they were they, they were like suspecting that they would uh, that there would be some form of RICO charges used against the movement. Uh, and everyone was kind of like preparing for that. That was definitely that was definitely talked about as like a, as a potential like a tactic of of suppression. Um, you know, when you say that the types of like financial crime, like fraud charges that that were brought against this, this, the Soul Fund people, um, how they seem kind of unwarranted. That is something that uh, the judge in the bond hearing uh, kind of agreed with. <laughs> the, the judge, judge was unimpressed. Yes, the, I, 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 I listened to the uh, I listened to the hearing, and um, the judge was very skeptical of the prosecution's claims, and uh, basically told the prosecution like, if you like actually want this to like succeed, like in actual like court, you know, once, once this progresses, you're, you're going to have to have a much, much stronger case. Cause this all seems kind mm-hmm. of like nonsense. Uh, but you know, that, that didn't stop the prosecutors and the, uh, I believe it's the attorney general, uh, office mm-hmm. as well of Georgia, That's right. of, of, of using, using kind of some stuff from this, from this raid against the solidarity fund and trying to kind of tie together this grand conspiracy narrative that we now see in this, uh, in this RICO indictment. So Let's, I guess, let's let's talk a little bit about the RICO indictment at at this at this point. Um, so RICO is a very like scary word, right? Like this is like I feel like everyone kind of knows about like RICO like in like a pop culture like zeitgeist sense, but do do want to actually like talk about like what these types of RICO charges actually are? Because like you know most people, if, even if they're charged with a crime, right? Most people don't ever like have to deal with like RICO as like a concept. Um, yeah. so do, do you know, if, if, if you're like arrested at a protest, you'll get like, you know, pedestrian in roadway, there's like a litany of other kind of basic charges that cops will throw at you. Rico is a bit more serious. Like it's kind of, it's kind of like a scary ordeal, you know, same thing with like the domestic terrorism charges that, that, uh, that have been used the, the past year. So yes, um, what ex- Rico is a lot more serious. Um, yeah. So like, what exactly is similar- Rico? Rico is, um, uh, 
Well, it was initially a federal law that was passed in an effort to target specifically organized crime um, because federal prosecutors were having a difficult time prosecuting these sort of individual offenses that were being committed by dispersed groups of individuals who are all acting, maybe not in concert, but in the service of a larger criminal enterprise. There's a couple of important things that I want to say um, just up front. Sure. The first thing is this is not the first time that RICO has been used uh, against movement people. The second thing I want to say is that all prosecutions are political prosecutions and RICO is no different. Um, although federal RICO and ostensibly Georgia state RICO were developed and passed in an effort to target organized crime, um, that is not how they've been primarily used. Um, and I think it is really significant to note that after a lot of the um, people of color solidarity movements like the Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, AIM, the Brown Berets, the Young Lords, these groups were all really weakened by COINTELPRO. And the community groups that remained were then labeled as gangs and prosecuted under RICO. Um, and so I just, you know, everything that happens in this conversation, we have to sort of hold in our minds that this particular movement is not the first movement and not the first community who has had RICO um, leveled against it as a form of state repression. Yeah, and specifically Fulton County, it, it, it looks like the, the batch of indictments that were using these RICO charges, it looks like this was, at least according to the, uh, to the Atlantic Constitution Journal people, this, this was the same grand jury that did the RICO indictments against uh, former President Donald Trump as well um, mm -hmm. for, for, this, for, this, for this batch of charges. And they've used, they've used RICO charges against like young black rappers in the past. This, mm -hmm. is, like, this is a, a thing that the Fulton County office has, has done before. Yes. And you know, so like we, we have like RICO's this like criminal racketeering thing against the mob. Uh, in terms of like what RICO actually is, like is, is, is it its own separate charge or is it like, mm -hmm. uh, is it a way to like apply other felony charges? Like, you know, can, can you just be charged with RICO or is, is, is there have to be like other, other crimes that you're accused of for them to actually like use this, use this charge against these activists? RICO is its own criminal offense but it relies upon there having been other criminal offenses committed in the service of a larger criminal enterprise or a conspiracy to try to do crimes in the service of a larger criminal enterprise. And one of the reasons that it is so broad in sweep, I mean, federal RICO is already very broad in sweep and Georgia RICO in particular is notorious for being even broader one of the reasons it is so attractive to prosecutors is precisely because it can capture these large groups of people with very little actual criminal conduct. Okay, so yeah, that's kind of one of the things that we'll want to talk about is I read the indictment as soon as it came out, as, as soon as it was made public. Um, mm -hmm. it is, it is a long document. Uh, the, the, yes. the, the first batch of it is just like, it's almost like a really bad, like Wikipedia article on like, on like what anarchism is, is, is how, is how, yes. the, is how the document starts. 
um, yes. and, then it, and then it gets into all these like alleged uh, alleged like uh, offenses that are not necessarily criminal in nature, but they're all in the service of pushing forward yes. this conspiracy to stop the construction of this police training facility. So there's a lot of like kind of like a uh, like random, almost asinine stuff in there that that they're that they're alluding is is a quote unquote an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. You know, anything from like buying glue or buying like food supplies, they're they're including, or or things like like um like writing your name as ACAB, they they they're including that as like as 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 an was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, which is 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 kind of silly. It doesn't make very much sense, but like these also these is this is like a very serious case as well though, because this is like you know this is people people you know facing twenty years in prison on top of like the domestic terrorism charges. Well, uh, do you know what else is a uh, overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy? It is the the uh, the advertising that allows us to continue this show. It's all it's all it's all all part of the plan. So yes, every every single ad is a co-conspirator. So take that, uh, Ronald Reagan coin. <laughs> okay, we are we are back. We could talk about more about the actual indictment uh, in, in a sec. I, I do kind of want to first talk about who are facing these charges, right? Because these are these are 61 people. And it looks like for, for when I was looking through, it, it, one of the first things that you notice is like, oh, they, they're, they're mostly charging people with who have already been charged before. They're, they're, there's, there's not That's very right. many new people added to this case. It's mostly people who've already been arrested and charged. So can, can, can you kind of like talk about the, the scope of these 61 people who are included in this indictment? Yes. So um, as I was saying, the scope of... Uh, Georgia Rico is extremely broad, and some of the criminal acts that can serve as a predicate for charging Rico are these extremely unremarkable acts that we would typically think of as being very normal protest-related behavior. Yeah, and some of them are things like domestic terrorism, and so I don't think it is a an accident that. All of those people were charged with domestic terrorism in the beginning months of this, yeah. uh, of this sort of um, push to overcharge the stock cop city activists. And in fact, I think one of the things that tipped us off at that point that Rico was in the pipeline was that people were being charged with domestic terrorism, which is one of the predicate offenses for Rico. And so many of the people who are on this indictment are the people who were already charged with domestic terrorism. They were overcharged with domestic terrorism. In my opinion, they were overcharged. Um, I think in <laughs> the opinion of most attorneys, they were overcharged. Yeah. Um, they were charged in that manner, not because the allegations against them are serious. In fact, if you look at the allegations um, in those domestic terrorism indictments, or they're not even indictments yet, most of them, um, in those domestic terrorism um, charges, in the, the documents that are associated with those arrests, the allegations are, you know, as I said, these absolutely unremarkable garden variety sort of criminal trespass allegations. By and large, the allegations against people, they include things that are absolutely lawful, like having mud on your uh, on your like having clothing, mud yeah. on your knees. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the allegations, one of the things that's remarkable about RICO and frankly about the domestic terrorism stuff is that both of those statutes um, allow for the sort of bootstrapping 
of one offense into a much more serious offense if certain conditions are met. With respect to the domestic terrorism statute, a very large number of garden variety offenses like criminal trespassing can be transformed into domestic terrorism if they are perceived to be essentially politically motivated. Yeah. In the case of, so what we have here is a a situation where a bunch of people got charged with domestic terrorism, not because they were doing something really dramatic or violent, but because whatever it was they were doing was perceived as being an effort to influence public policy. So we transformed a very minor offense into a very serious offense. That serious offense then became the predicate offense for RICO, which is an even more serious offense. Yeah. And from my understanding, at least in terms of a a lot, a lot of the people in the sixty-one indictments are are are, are the, the sixty-one people in in the indictment um, is from the arrests that happened at the music festival last That's March, right. and yes. a lot of those, a lot, a lot of a lot of those people were only charged with domestic terrorism, which is interesting because usually domestic terrorism in Georgia is like an enhancement charge, but mm-hmm. lots of the people weren't actually charged with any of the other other charges yet. It, it, the prosecutors just argued because we're charging with domestic terrorism, it's like inferred that they must have done some other crimes that we haven't yet specified. But in the way that works for the for the RICO uh, indictments, because I think you need to have already have like, two, like I think there's like a, a prerequisite of like two other like felonious charges. Um, yeah. What they did in, in, the, in, the, in these RICO charges is go back to the music festival and break down every single thing that happened there that they're alleging these people did as separate instances, like like planning to go to the place, you know, marching to the place, being at the place. Like they broke it down to, to have all these separate things so, so that they could like shoehorn it into this Rico indictment. Um, so there's a lot of like, a, you know, revisionist history going on here. Very kind of different arguments than what the actual like domestic terrorism uh, bond hearings had in like uh, previous months. Um, but yeah, there is at least at, at, at least one person in the indictments who is new. I, I think I, I think possibly a few others, but I, I, I haven't haven't quite checked. But there's at least one person, which is in, in a very interesting case. It's this it's this guy who worked at the uh, the flock camera company. Who, I saw that who they are alleging was was yes. passing off information uh, about where cameras were 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 were, were located. And this is this an ex- extremely interesting case because he is he, he is not included in in, in in any other previous charges, but that is at least one of the people who who are kind of new additions to this indictment. One thing I did want to mention because you've you've said you've you've kind of mentioned a few times that these are these are state level RICO charges. Those are kind of different than federal RICO charges. Um, do you want to kind of get into like the difference between state and federal charges, and specifically how kind of the ones in Georgia work versus the 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 federal RICO that, you know, kind of inspired different states to kind of add their own uh, style of RICO. The big difference between uh, the federal RICO statute, which is already extremely vague. I think Scalia said something like, Scalia, who is notoriously um, not uh, far left yeah. uh, activist, right? I'm not a supporter of of leftists uh, in, in any meaningful way. Um, I think described the federal RICO statute, I think, as intolerably vague. So the federal RICO statute is already very 
broad in its scope. It already does this thing that we were discussing of pulling in many, many people by associating them with a, you know, this criminal enterprise. The Georgia RICO statute is even more broad. The Georgia RICO statute uses a lot of the same terms, right? A pattern of racketeering activity, right? Um, It uses a lot of the same concepts, but it defines those concepts in ways that are even broader, even easier to apply. So I think the thing that is significant about RICO is that similar to um, like what we would see with conspiracy, where, um, you know, not every person involved in a conspiracy needs to have been Um, participating in every single criminal instance of criminal conduct in order to be implicated. They don't even need to like know the other co-conspirators necessarily. So that's the case in this indictment. Yes, yes. And that is sometimes the case with maybe other RICO indictments. We certainly have seen some stuff like gang prosecutions where the people involved don't know each other. Um, Typically, I I wouldn't actually expect to see something that broad. When a prosecutor wants to indict someone for engaging in criminal conduct, they need to have individualized probable cause that that individual did the crime. One of the things, and you can't attribute one person's behavior to another person. RICO offers a way around that. Yeah. To use RICO in the way that the prosecutors in Georgia are doing, among other things, enables them to engage in a sort of collective punishment of people who they perceive as holding certain ideologies. Um, And those people can be engaged in lawful behavior and even in constitutionally protected behavior. But if they can characterize any of that behavior as having been an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, the fact that this person bought glue and was reimbursed for the glue can function to allow the prosecutor to attribute all of this other criminal conduct to the person who bought glue. Basically, your people can you know be hit with charges that are being you know alleged against actions of other people but they're all getting like roped up together and they're all facing these charges together Um, that's right so you can like the the allegation that there is a criminal enterprise allows the prosecutors to associate various people and various acts even lawful acts even constitutionally protected acts with attempting to further that criminal enterprise. And so the allegation that this criminal enterprise exists is the fundamental core of this indictment. Now, you read the indictment and it's, you know, it's laughable. They're making these claims that you know, if it weren't so serious, if this weren't so serious, we'd all be rolling on the floor. The idea yeah. that mutual aid is uh, sinister. Yeah. 
It really, to me, when I read this indictment, I thought, wow, this is just fascinating because what's happening here is that Georgia is saying the quiet part out loud. We all know state repression is real. We all know that the American legal system functions to repress dissent, to impose prior restraints on uh, First Amendment protected behavior, to chill speech, to frighten people into submission, right? We understand that it is this coercive system, but there is at least a sort of set of rules that purport to prioritize fairness, that purport to value concepts of due process. And the RICO statute, and in particular the RICO statute as it is being used here, really functions so explicitly to circumvent those rules that we can, that they're just, they're not even trying anymore. They're not even trying to pretend that they care about individual probable cause, um, about the First Amendment, and I would say most frighteningly about the Sixth Amendment, which is the right to counsel, um, because they have gone way beyond the pale in um, alleging that things like accessing legal help or accessing bail or having legal observers, or um, you know, providing anti-repression trainings, yeah. are in some manner um, sinister acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. And I am really—I don't know what will happen here. I really um, can't begin to guess because um, I feel like it is no longer possible for me to be surprised by uh, the nonsense that is coming out of this jurisdiction. Um, I don't know what will happen, but I am very, very curious to see how uh, the bench, how the, the judges in Georgia respond to these allegations um, that involve um, making it part of a criminal conspiracy to provide legal assistance. Um, you know, this is to me like one of the most concerning aspects uh, of this of this indictment, because as absurd as it is, this could have very serious consequences. Yeah, I mean, that's something people have been talking about with Atlanta for a while now, is that because of how many, you know, criminal cases there is around the, the Stop Cop City uh, like movement, whatever kind of the result of those cases is going to be is going to set a very uh, influential precedent for future for future kind of eco defense campaigns future like any anything relating to like like civil rights um you know uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, police abolition or even even th- even things as like benign as like police reform um mm-hmm. like any any kind of like any kind of like grassroots activist whatever kind of movement that's going to happen in the future is going to be affected by how these cases go because not only is you know as 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 you mentioned the uh you know access to bail fund being being and like access to 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 lawyers and and and, so, and legal support is being used in these rico charges they were also alleging that by having a you know a a bail fund number on your arm that was like you know th- that was evidence that that this, that this person intended to do crimes and then you know as as evidence mm-hmm. in, in support of these domestic terrorism charges which is in you know an extremely dangerous le- legal claim to 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 be to, to be talking about and we've been dealing with that in Atlanta for months now and it's you know it's created this yeah. really chilling effect on the ground that you know mm-hmm. you can you can be you know 
doing something as simple as marching in the street and now have not only t- like terrorism charges, having RICO charges for stuff that is very clearly like First Amendment activity. Yeah, um, I think it it is really fascinating to me uh, that the law enforcement apparatus in Georgia is basically um, engaging in really concerted state repression against this movement, which is highly visible and highly legible as state repression. And then when people respond appropriately by anticipating that they may be subject to state repression by writing the jail support number on their arm, not because they believe that they intend to go out and do crimes, but because they know that um, unremarkable acts of First Amendment protected conduct may result in intense state repression. The law enforcement apparatus then responds by rationalizing their repression further. I mean, it's just we we can see the um, sort of post hoc fallacy at work in real time. Um, it's not clear to me how um, how much of the hypocrisy is self-aware. Sure. You know who else doesn't talk to cops? Products, products and services. Well, I, I cannot guarantee that. I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if these companies have the same standards that you and I have. They don't have shared values. In, in terms of our uh, uh, willingness to... to to, to talk with the police um but they but you know who they, probably has good defense lawyers so, oh yes yeah, so all of <laughs> all of these products and services that support this podcast definitely do have good defense lawyers that is true so listen listen to their uh, important messages there is actually a part of this um indictment that i think deserves some very serious attention yeah um, absolutely so typically when we're thinking about RICO, we're thinking about like white collar crime. Yeah. And we're thinking about um, the use of RICO to target groups that are doing unlawful things in order to profit. This indictment seems to allege that Stop Cop City activists are raising money to do crime, which is sort of the opposite, right? And as, as we said the crime that they're alleging by and large is really petty and there does seem to be one major act of violence that is alleged in this indictment um and i i think we need to talk about it for a second because that one alleged act of violence involves the claim that Manuel Tortuguita Tehran, who was murdered by police, was firing upon officers. And that is an incredibly central claim in this indictment that really is, um, I think, the hook on which they're hanging a lot of the, um, the seriousness of of the allegations. Yeah. And it is an incredibly disingenuous claim and it's an incredibly dangerous claim. Um, the evidence that they're using to support that claim is the statement of a third party who was not present. Um, it's a regrettable statement uh, that they've dug up from some group out, you know, um, you know, thousands of miles away from the Atlanta forest. Yes. Um, 
And there's no reason to credit that statement, but they are using it to support this claim that is, as I said, it's it's critical to their argument and it is extremely disingenuous and it's extremely dangerous um, for, um, for the office of a prosecutor, which, you know, for what it's worth is supposed to pursue justice and not convictions. It is just intolerable to me <laughs> that, that somebody thought this was an acceptable thing to put into a legal document. And like you, you were talking about how you know they're using statements from the uh, the scenes.noblogs website, which anyone can submit to. There's no barrier of evidence for submitting to. Yeah. And well, one interesting interesting aspect that I, I, I did want to mention is that for many of the kind of the 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 little like you know accounts that they that they have in their indictment, it's it's just referencing people you know claiming that they did crimes on 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 this website, but they're they are attributing the the either like co authorship of these claims. To the people at the Solidarity the Fund, Fund. Yes. which which they've laid out no evidence in supporting that. It's, it's, it's one of the more bizarre aspects of, of this indictment because they make ev- they 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 claim that every single post on scenes is somehow the Solidarity Fund people are in part responsible for it, um, which is absolutely absurd. I, I, there's there's they they've, they've produced nothing, no piece of evidence in in support of this claim. But that is one of the core parts of their indictment because much much of what they're filling this indictment with, you know, they're talking about how there's people doing you know doing crimes in San Francisco, in in Portland, yes. in like <laughs> Minneapolis, like all across like New York, all all across the country, right? This is part of like the the criminal conspiracy angle, um, which very very clearly from my perspective, this is you know people all across the country who care about a cause and so they're doing something in their own city it's there's, there's no there's no conspiracy to it it's, it's people taking their own individual action um but they're they're trying they're trying to tie this into the solidarity fund in a very bizarre way um you know i i'll be curious to see if they ever try to produce evidence to support that claim in court but it's 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 so laughable on the face so you're like how can how can three people with with a bail fund be be connected to these direct actions happening all across the country well, I, that's not literally what they're claiming, though, right? And I think this is this is where we see this difference of perspective mattering a lot. The kind of distributed network of um, autonomous solidarity that exists in this instance is something that is totally foreign to uh people who are very used to having hierarchy in their lives. Yeah, and, yes, yes. you know, I think I've, I've talked to, uh, about this before, I think on this show um, <laughs> about the fact that, um, when the far right organizes, they organize in ways that are familiar to police and prosecutors, right? They organize in these very martial hierarchical ways where there's a clear chain of command. Now, Often their chain of command is very silly and involves people having titles like dragons and wizards, but it's legible, right? It's legible to law enforcement. They understand there's someone in charge and there's someone who answers to the person in charge. Having a situation where we have a website that is unmoderated, hosted by or supported by some group and, and totally open is something that I think, you know, 
police and prosecutors might have a, a little bit of difficulty understanding, yeah. right? Because it it's inconceivable to them that there is not a hierarchy, that there's not a chain of command. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, I've actually had to drop footnotes in federal court filings to explain to judges and to explain to opposing counsel that um, Antifa is like a set of practices and not a membership organization. Yes. Right. Yes. And that trying to um, trying to address Antifa as though it were an organization is is similar to trying to address the world of Batman fans, yes. um, <laughs> right? Like these are all people who might self-identify in some way, but you couldn't really identify them as a group uh, and they don't know each other and they're not <laughs> so identifying um, in any way for each other. Yeah, well, and, and as that relates to the Noblogs website, like it's they have, they have not laid out any evidence of who is running this website it, at like who who is who's operating it who's hosting the servers there's n none of that none of that information is included in, in the indictment so the fact that they're trying to tie this to solidarity fund in some way is is very is 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 very bizarre just because there was like a link on this website to donate to the solidarity fund but any, any anyone could put a link there like that's like i i i i've put links to the to the solidarity fund in the show notes of this podcast right i i'm i'm not <laughs> i'm not connected to them in any in any other way um so just just have, have it, having that be this this kind of aspect and even even if somehow solidarity fund were running running, running this whole website which there's no evidence they are this feels like it would also relate to like a section 230 case where people who host content are not responsible for the actual like like they are they are not like the I'm not a super big law person but this usually applies to like social media sites and other places that host user generated content that you know, the right. actual site itself is not responsible for the user generated content that is the, that is that is on the site so it's it, anyway there's a whole bunch of you know various various aspects of this claim that don't don't make any sense to me but it's very clear that they're trying to wrap all of these no blogs posts in because that's the most that's most of like the evidence they have which is extremely weak you know it's 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 in, in some ways a good sign that all they have are these anonymous posts on this website with no actual you know um idea of 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 who made them or if they're true or not um but that's the kind of that's the that's a lot of a lot of what we're, a lot of what they are going off are ju are just these website posts which Look, kind of, a, a lot of these things i don't even know if they could make them admissible um, or under what theory, because, you know, we don't, I don't know how they would attribute them, right? I mean, look, they're public statements. I suppose they can bring them in just as public statements that have been made. But I, the, the indictment is a mess and it is full of baffling claims and unsupported claims and claims that are demonstrably untrue. And nevertheless, I am concerned <laughs> that um, they may get somewhere. I yeah. don't know. I don't practice in that jurisdiction. I'm not familiar. You know, I've never defended a RICO case, um, just to be clear. Um, you know, my my wheelhouse is state repression. This is clearly that. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm not tremendously familiar with um, litigating RICO. And I'm not, you know, I would like to have 
some faith in the legal system, but <laughs> that faith has been worn rather thin. Um, and it has particularly been worn thin uh, after watching, you know, all of the abuses that have taken place in this particular case. So, you know, I am really concerned. I'm really concerned about the constitutionality of um of this statute and of the domestic terrorism statute. Um, I am concerned about what will happen in the courts um, if this proceeds. Um, That said, it is entirely possible that this is like many, many criminal cases that are brought in the context of protest movements. It is entirely possible that the primary thing motivating these cases is an effort to fractionate and drain and distract and criminalize in the popular imagination the movement to stop Cop City. Um, They may be more interested in doing those things than they are in obtaining any convictions or proceeding to trial. Um, And they may well succeed. You know. Look, prosecution is a very, very effective way to um, to undermine movement solidarity, and it's a very effective way to undermine popular support, and it's a very effective way um, to make it impossible for people to actually focus on their movement goals um, because they have to spend all of their time doing court support. Yeah, and- yeah hiring lawyers and talking to me right <laughs> and um and when you're talking to me you're probably not doing a lot of public education or signature gathering or forest defense right yeah so um you know i guess what i would say is like this is a very clear example of state repression it is extremely disruptive i'm sure that the people who are included on this indictment um have good reason to be quite anxious um yeah. but That said, as I frequently remind people, state repression is not new. It exists all of the time, whether or not we can see it, right? Even if we didn't have this indictment, um, there would be other things happening. Um, And the most powerful weapon that the state has to quell social movements is fear. And so the solution to state repression is not self-censorship. It is not staying home. It is courage. I think that's one of the more you know interesting things about what's been happening in Atlanta the past two years is that every time the state has kind of unveiled a new suppression tactic, right? It's whether it's like in, you know increased raids and domestic terrorism charges, um, you know, all of the, the the solidarity fund raid, you know, trying to compromise people's ability to access bail funds. Um, every time there's been this this kind of new attempt, it has not cause people to back down it's caused them to actually like strengthen their solidarity with each other and 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 keep on and keep on going i think that's because all of these things have been seen from the start as very clear tactics of state repression it is actually like catalyzed people to actually like care for each other more and 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 recognize what is going on so they can respond appropriately and 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 not let all of these all these very like chilling tactics but consciously make sure that you recognize that so that you don't let it really like, you know, affect your ability to continue, continue doing the work that you feel is so important. Um, and that's absolutely been one of the things that's been very unique to watch in Atlanta. Um, 
I, I think uh, I think we've kind of covered lots of lots of what I wanted to get into. Um, in case you have any other kind of uh, things of note or any like uh, any like uh, resources you want to you want to point people towards, um, I think I think we'll be kind of close to wrapping up here. I do not do social media, <laughs> so I have nothing to plug. Um, I think the best resources um, that are out there are. Um, the Center for Constitutional Rights has a zine called If an Agent Knocks. Yep. Um, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has a uh, website called Surveillance Self-Defense. And I would recommend uh, everyone familiarize themselves with both of those things. Uh, and for the love of God, encrypt your phone and use signal yes abs absolutely um i guess what one I one of the things about that indictment that was so that just made me roll my eyes until they popped out the back of my head was this <laughs> um casting of the use of encrypted technology as being extremely sinister <laughs> and i thought my god you know Privacy is good, actually, and it's literally it in the Constitution. In, like, it is, in fact, the case that the government is not entitled to all information about us, which is why we have curtains and doors. <laughs> yes, no, there's there's certainly many many funny aspects of the Rico case. Hopefully, you know, people this this will all you know turn out to be not very legally viable. And in 10 years, we can just laugh about it. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, it's people have been talking about, uh, you know, the, the increased possibility for these types of grand juries. You know, this this, this was a grand jury um, in the case mm -hmm. of these RICO indictments where they used uh, Special Agent Ryan Long of the GBI as their only witness. Um, I was noticing this. I thought, my God, you only had one witness for all of these allegations. <laughs> well, no wonder your indictment reads like it was... <laughs> Oh, all right. I'm yes. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to stop talking shit about their indictment. <laughs> While recognizing this is state repression, there there is still like you know an ongoing fear of grand juries and like further indictments yeah. in Atlanta because you you have to. It's is very like life and death work, and this is a very life and death situation. Um. So you know, very there's very very clear uh, uh practices like like using signal and shutting the fuck up. Um are very important when you know when you're when you're when you're doing this sort of thing um the one other thing is that uh for for a while after the solidarity fund was raided they they were not you know taking in donations they they were outsourcing it to the net to the national bail fund um i believe they are they are back uh the the, the solidarity fund website is is now once again uh taking taking donations to help people who are facing this repression for legal support for counsel all of all of these sorts of things and because this case just keeps on growing, um, you know, they're they're always kind of needing 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 more resources to get people lawyers, to get people out of jail, all of these sorts of things. So you can you can once again donate at the uh, at the atlsolidarity.org site. So that is that is also kind of new news as of as of the past few uh, few weeks. Um, thank you, Mo, for for it's, talking about this. Uh, this has been oh, very yeah, very enlightening. It's my pleasure. And I guess the, the last thing I'll say is I do, as always, want to remind all of your listeners that there is never, ever 
a compelling reason to speak to police or answer their questions before you talk to a lawyer. And so if police start asking you questions, the one and only thing you need to say is, I am going to remain silent and I want to speak with my attorney. And if they knock on your door or call you on the phone, you can say, I am represented by counsel. Please leave your name and number and my lawyer will call you. Yep. <laughs> you can print off the little sheet that tells you what to say. Put it put it next to your door. Join the uh, join the number of punk houses that have <laughs> that have the sheet next to their next to their front door. <laughs> the Fourth about... Amendment cheat sheet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, again, thank you, Moira. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, yeah, do not do not talk to cops. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.